Hello, my fellow lovers of happiness, and welcome once again to the Natural High Club. It's Ollie here, and I'm really excited to be speaking to you today because I've just had a sensational conversation with world-famous stylist Alan Kennedy. Alan has worked with some of the best fashion magazines on the globe, as well as dressing many of the biggest A-list Hollywood stars throughout a glittering career. He's got some unbelievable stories to tell in what has been an inordinately varied and colourful life so far. In this episode, we discuss the status quo, the future of mankind, the Navy, stripping for David Beckham, hanging out with Leonardo DiCaprio, getting offered outside by Bradley Cooper his favourite celebs, as well as getting high as the rave scene struck Britain. We also get to find out some of the favourite books, bands and films of one of the most interesting, opinionated, open and genuine people that I've ever had the pleasure of speaking to. So download, sit back and enjoy this two-hour tour de force with Alan Kennedy. And remember, you can drop me a line at admin at naturalhigh.club and don't forget to follow me on Twitter for all the latest updates at Natural High Club. Prost. Hello. Technology is supposed to make things easier. And, um, still nothing. Yeah, I can hear you now. That's why I, I stopped using Skype because it was just, it was, I'd phone my parents and always have the same thing and they'd be doing something wrong. But Trying to get people of the older generation involved with this sort of stuff is an absolute debacle, isn't it? I know. I mean, try get, my dad would fucking with his big fingers would like press something and be like what the fuck that's all i'd hear it's like, i can hear you but I, you know and it was just by the time by the time you get it working you're exhausted you're too I'm tired just like, to, to talk I'll, 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 it's a 20 dollar telephone call on my mobile fuck it i'll do it it's easier it's <laughs> less painful so true so true so how are you how are the dickens yeah i'm all right muddling along it's funny old time over here with this election the economy's fucking shit so it's kind of it's a weird time here, really weird Things not year. working so well. No, nah, it's been a very quiet year for everybody, especially in the advertising business and stuff. Nobody's, nobody's buying clothes. Right, I see. So there's nobody to shoot then? Well, it's just, it's, it's kind of like budgets are dropped. And also, everybody's, I mean, everybody's having the same situation. That all my friends are photographers and stuff like that. And it's, it's, we're all thinking it must be to do with the election because it's such an anomaly. Time of unpredictability, and also look at the options you've got. It's I know, an absolute it's become, shocker, isn't it? Uh, it's become it's, well. I mean, Brexit was a joke to watch, and I thought that unbelievable could be any worse. But these guys have stepped it up. It's just I fear that politics has become this ridiculous circus. There's uh, no politics involved, no, is no, there? No, it's, it's all about personalities, and like you know, there's nothing remotely said that's like I, I mean. The only time I had any decent discourse was when Scotland were going for independence. That was actually quite an intelligent run. Um, Conversation, yeah. yeah. And it was really like, but then they disappointed. Like, you know, now with the Brexit, we probably, we would vote otherwise, I'm sure. The, the two main figureheads of Brexit, as far as I could see from a distance, were Boris Johnson and Nigel Farage, and they both buggered off I know, immediately. I know, I know. They both, like, created havoc. Then it's like, what the fuck do we do now? I know exactly. There was no. That was the thing. It was all this conversation, but nobody actually had any intelligent, like, resolutions. Like, all right, what if we leave? They just made it a motive. And for me, right, I read so much on it. I'm, I was swithering between swithering. Yeah, maybe we're better. Maybe we're better out. We're better in. I'd read all these like so-called expert economists, and one would counter the other's argument, and um, but. 
in the end, and I, I, I believe I'm fairly intelligent, I couldn't really decide with any confidence whether we'd be better off or not. It literally would have been just, fuck it, yeah, I'll say yes or no. But um, I don't think there was any real precedent, was there? Nobody knew what was going to happen because nobody, there was no precedent set. There was no model of or case study from anywhere else. It, it turns out it was just actually an internal Tory party power struggle. Yeah. Next thing absolutely. you know, we're fucking, we're out of Europe. And absolutely like, incredible. I mean, I, I mean, I, I still don't understand like what will be the effect of it, you know, whether it would be like totally catastrophic. I think the the kind of like this limbo we're in or the UK's in, that's catastrophic, you know, because it's the same as happening here in America. Once you have a direction, fucking with hell or high water, you just go for it. But this kind of inaction while the rest of the world yeah. gets on with their shit, it doesn't really help. I mean, I, I didn't, you know, I mean, there's a whole load of issues. There's the whole immigration thing. There's like, you know, it's, it's just, it's a very, Europe's in a very strange place right now. I think that all of the worst moments in history have, have come about as, a, as maybe as a consequence, but around the time of walls being built rather than brought down. We live in a communication age. Surely there should be less barriers than ever. I mean, I'm very much uh, an advocate of, just freedom of movement. I think people should be able to go where they want in this in this world, and I think ultimately people will be able to go where they want. I don't. I think. I mean, you live in one of the most cosmopolitan places in the world, and, and Amsterdam, where I live, is too. I, I wouldn't like to live in a place which wasn't an ethnic melting pot, would you? I mean, it's, immigration isn't the problem. Education and employment is the biggest issue in the world just now. It's not immigration is a subplot. That's, it all comes you, down to money at the end of the day, doesn't well, it? Because I, everybody's so in need of money these well, days. Money is the created this greedy society. These people who make these shitty products that we have to buy, that we feed into, they benefit from talking about immigration. Immigration is is it's a cloud, right? It takes us off the real issues, which is like, why do you hate him? It's because you haven't worked. Your father never worked. Your granddad lost his job. We've now got three generations of unemployed families. Right, and we the education system fails them. I mean, nobody think. I mean, they are ignorant. The problem is, is they don't do themselves like. You lose compassion when you hear these people because they're ignorant, and you think, ah, oh, well, you know, sod him. Listen to that guy. But you'd be ignorant if you if you were given their opportunities. A lack of opportunities. But is it going to get any better, Alan? Because, you know, there's a population explosion. There's automation going on with technology. There's less and less jobs. There's more and more people. Well, I, I honestly, like, I mean, I, I'm Scottish, so it's like we're pathologically negative anyway. So it's like, you know, I do think that, you know, I was speaking to a friend. Like, I live in New York, and, I, and I've had the opportunity to earn good money here. And so you end up, you buy into this lifestyle. And then you wake up one day, and the arse, falls out of your industry or it slows up yeah which it can happen in a heartbeat now because everything's happened so fast and then you realize you know i've just waken up to the fact that i've never really had to budget my money before the last this year has been a terrible year suddenly i'm waking up to the fact that wait a minute my bills are this amount of money right and i'm paying this for my my phones and my toys and my office and you and you just wake up and you think my god i can't spend i'm just, i can't spend any money yeah because like at the moment, probably 60% of my income in the month is going on bills, right. car, rent, because rents have gone up. Like my rent in my New York apartment, which is like a shoebox compared to like anything you'll get in Europe, um, 
but it's considered quite a large one bedroom. My rent's gone up eight hundred dollars. It used to be two thousand three hundred. Now it will be three thousand one hundred in February. Now, so prices are going up and opportunities are, are going well, down, basically. Well, so like, and that always like you know, and then, and if you're in a business like I am and it's freelance and you got to eke out your you own know, living. I, my rent, my rent's gone up thirty three percent, and my income's probably gone down by the same level. So it's like, at what point, what gives? And that's just like, and I'm comfortably middle class. Now New York is a middle class enclave, and everybody's feeling um, the pinch. The pinch because you know everybody bought into this, like, oh, nice apartments, nice toys, and and then you realise, like, but none of these things are actually. Um, you can't eat them. Really make me happy. They can't make me happy. Yeah, sure. It's like you know, I was, I was home doing my visa, and I had to stay longer. So I, I got to spend four weeks in Scotland with my parents, and uh, my brother, who's on the oil rigs, bought them in a um, a new house because, like, unlike his roguish big brother, who's just spent all his money, <laughs> spunked it all, spunked it all, yeah, <laughs> on um, you know the usual wine, women, and <laughs> fancy clothes, and um, you can't remember any of it. No, I know. Well, I've got some fond, but well, I've got some fond memories, and I'll probably have a good few stories when I'm all dried up. None that I would tell while my parents are alive. But you know, he's he's the sensible one. Left school with no education, like me, he went into the navy, but he left, went into, the, got a job because of his navy experience on the oil rigs, on a ship that maintains the oil rigs, and he has got like. A great salary making now i always made more money than him, but in real terms he's making way more money than me mm. he's got three houses which he's his mortgage is half of what i pay in my rent and he's got three houses now yeah. i mean it's incredible it just makes you think that like you know i chased some ridiculous dream and you're lucky enough to experience these things but you know i'm 46 now and i could give a shit if i eat in another fancy restaurant i really could mm. i mean it's just it's once you've done it, it's almost just like you're ticking off a box. Yeah, when I go home, like I said, when I was home with my parents, waking up in the morning, they live in a little village in Perthshire, which is beautiful. They now overlook the football park that I grew up playing football on every day. So I look out the window, there it is, you know, field of dreams. And um, a field of shattered dreams, probably. Right? So <laughs> that, that, that was like, you know. Um, and so I wake up in the morning, put the kettle on, have a cup of tea, read the newspapers, you know, it's the, the sun will be coming up. I go out, walk out to the golf course, which is half an hour away. And I can say with like, you know, I am happy, content. And anybody that knows me in New York sees my wrinkled up, angry face. And it would be shocked at the simple contentment. Come home, have a bacon sani, another cup of tea, a little nap. You know, that, that to me is like, I think people have to learn how to like, and I've had this conversation with all my creative friends here and stuff, the creative community. Everybody's, they've had enough of it. It's just what we've been sold, this um, bag of goods, it's, it's, it's nonsense. None, it's, of it, yeah. none of it makes us happier. None of us makes us more fulfilled. I mean, doesn't that, isn't that, that's exactly how capitalism works, though, isn't it? it course, they create, they create yeah, greed for materials. Yeah, it, they create an independent society. Like, in New York, for instance, which is the, the least compassionate city in the world, right? Because people really do not give a shit about each other. <laughs> Honestly, they do not. That's the cliche, isn't it? No, they do not give a shit. There's so many people, but like, it's the cliche that you're never more alone than in New York. And you're so it's true then. It's true. Yeah, it's a fact. The fact. I mean, and you realize in times of trouble who your friends are here. And, and, and they're few and far between. Most of my friends are people I've known for like 20 years in right. London and stuff, you know? 
But, you know, so you're here, you get this like lifestyle and, and he just, and it's empty. And, and people, are, but at the same time, it's costing you a fortune to live in your shoebox. And in New York, I can, I can have my, house, my apartment cleaned. I can have somebody do my laundry and deliver it and drop it off. I order my food in. You know, if I wanted, I could order a woman online. You, you don't have to leave the apartment. I mean, yeah. actually, online porn's that good now. You don't even have to get a, a woman. It's ridiculous. <laughs> We've become, the, like, we are, like, it's the geeks of, it's not the meek that have inherited the world. It's the geeks have inherited the world. They've created this anti-social environment where, you know, you don't have to talk to MD. And, like, and I'm 46, and I, and I can deal with, I'm mature enough to deal with social media, texting people, Tinder, all that things. You imagine being 21, and just driven, you know, by testosterone. It, mm. it, it, mental. These kids, have, I mean, they're our future. <laughs> I really worry for them because how are they going to cope? Where are the, where are the firemen of tomorrow going to come from? It's at the heart of, uh, of, you know, my belief system is that we chase the dragon with materialism. You know, we're just constantly chasing the dragon and getting those material goods don't even make you that happy. Well, for some people they do, and that's great. But I think it's a real myth. I think the idea of materialism is a real myth because greed begets greed, and you just want more and more and more, and you're never happy with what you've got. Well, there's never an end to it. I think it was Dale Carnegie that said, success is getting what you want. Happiness is wanting what you get. Yeah, 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 for sure. But it's all been lost in this chase, like especially in America. I mean, I, I've been here 12 years now, and I, I, I still don't consider it home. I still don't have a green card. I keep just getting visas in the hope that this will be the last one. What a terrible way to live, but mm. it's kind of like it, it grips you. It's like... It's a bubble, like London. Yeah, and it's like, yeah, London, I mean, that's why I, I couldn't, I mean, I, in my business, you either have to live in London, New York, Paris, or Milan, you know? Okay. I mean, I, I would love the opportunity to live. I'd, if somebody offered me a job, GQ Italy offered me a job tomorrow. I'd be there in a heartbeat because right. the one thing the Italians have is their economy is busted. There's no real money; it's old money, mm. but they have a fantastic way of life. Yeah, and, and they live and and they live for that life. You know, it's you like, know what's wonderful about Italy and Spain. I lived in Spain last year, and they take real pride in their leisure time. Like it is a priority. Leisure time is a priority, whereas yeah, it's yeah. almost frowned upon in America and England, isn't it? Well, it's like it's it's like you can never do enough work. Yeah, and it's but what they use that opportunity to buy, um, get the family together. Now, if you go anywhere in like the Mediterranean, Italy, southern France, Spain, you know, like Sundays, the family's together. It's not a chore like in America. I use America as extreme. It's like you know we're coming up to that holiday season here where everybody has to go um, to you know Thanksgiving, and and you listen to the way the Americans talk about it, it becomes like. They, they just, none of them want to do it. You know, it's like <laughs> such a chore because they're all been independent since they were 12, 13 with a car at 17. They've lost their, they've lost their understanding. Like I've had girlfriends, I'm just like, your parents are amazing. You should be thankful every day that your parents care about you that yeah, much. But their best friend is their phone. They just want to interact with their phone. Yeah, and they don't see it, their parents, because I'm like, your parents spent 100,000 to put you through education. The least you could do is spend a Sunday every month in their company and listen to their stories. I mean, it's like, I get it. Old people repeat themselves. They'll talk about stuff, but there's a comfort in that, you know? Whereas in Italy, you see all that. The family's together. There's a real unity. Not every family, but it's much more so. They, they, they know the, the importance of it, and they've tried to hold on to that um, 
tradition. Whereas America, it's all about being famous, wealthy, uh, and 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 to a larger degree, Britain mimics that without the weather and the beautifully sculpted people, you know. And that's what's sad about Britain. We had something. We had like a beautiful, rich community, you know, sense of community, society, political. But we we just we're just we're a really bad tawdry version of America. Like if you go up to you go up to Liverpool, Manchester, Glasgow, these girls are like, you know, they're trying to be LA girls, but they're on stodgy diet, you know, they're on sunbeds <laughs> instead of the real sun. Hey, but let, you know, hey, let's not let's not pretend that America doesn't have a problem with obesity. Oh, no, of course. No, what I'm saying is like the glamour aspect of it. I mean, America, that's that's the dichotomy of America though. On the surface, it creates this vision of beautiful people, great teeth. But, you know, you go outside New York two and a half hours and you are in, like, the people are just absurd. Mm. It's like my friend, I go upstate to my friend and we'll go to the local supermarket. Now, I come from a very working class town in Scotland. And even in the 80s and stuff when there was high unemployment, you know, people took a sense of pride in themselves. Like some people were a bit scruffier than others but and a bit more poor, but there was always that working class sense of pride that you were clean, your house was clean, you presented yourself the best you can. You go upstate in America and they just, they dress like they don't give a shit. You know, it's like, they, they really don't give a shit. Everything's messy, the yards are full of junk, they look like crap, you know. Um, Have we gone past the perfect point of civilization? I mean, it was never perfect, but do you think, do you think this push for progress is just really stopping people from t taking time to think, wow, we really did have it amazing at that point? And, you know, do you think we've gone past the point? We've tipped the balance. I think so, because we're internalized too much. It's an and we, Nowadays, life is an internal experience, sure. right? Less community-based than ago, ever. Years ago, it was tactile. It was in, you had to engage. You know, you had to like, you know, you know, I would never had phones, computers. Yeah. It's like, you would never know you'd tell your mate to meet you at seven o'clock at the- Clock tower. The <laughs> just meet me at the telephone box. <laughs> and, and if he wasn't there, you'd just be like, well, where's he gone, you know? <laughs> it was just like, and you wouldn't know that. You know, but if you're a kid now, you look on social media and you've seen that he's at a party that you weren't invited to. So you're crushed. Yeah. <laughs> it's kind of like- Is that worse though? Is that a worse situation, scenario? Than... Oh, Sure or do you think we just do you think our memories are just drenched with nostalgia, so we assume it's better? It was better then. Uh, yeah, I mean there is, but the definite. I mean, I I don't think there's any argument that uh, my childhood is much, was much better than kids today. Because I mean, I never liked video games anyway, even when they came out as a kid. But I missed that. I was a bit too old to be playing them, but I was never into them. Now, like my, my nephews. You got to drag them out. They'd just be sitting playing video games all day <laughs> just, in, the, in the room. Yeah, it's so true. I, just, I can't understand that. I mean, when I was a kid, we were climbing trees and climbing sheds, and just it was all very physical and engaging with the environment, with people. Um, and you had to listen. You had to communicate. You weren't distracted. I mean, you you were on point. You know, because it's a massive problem, isn't it? It's a really is a massive problem. When you think about he the health issues in America, in the Western world in general, we're doing less exercise than ever, aren't we? Yeah, of course. And in, in here with the car, you know, ev everybody drives everywhere. Nobody does. I mean, that's what I'm saying. It's like we're becoming a less physical race of people, and you know, and that's only going to cause problems because at some point, as natural resources dry up, right? It's, it is like, you know, I can't help but think it's going to be like Mad Max at some point. And, and 
because totally but you know the strange thing to me is that it seems like we we deal with these things in the wrong way like pharmaceuticals for example are more prominent than ever botox is more prominent than ever we we seem to try and take these bizarre unhealthy shortcuts we've got amazing technology and amazing you know medicine but we use it we go the wrong way about it instead of just like reverting to actually doing more exercise i'll give you some antidepressants instead that's my worry is that like well especially here every i would say that maybe all the American people I know here, I would say maybe every one of them is on some sort of medication for depression or anxiety. Every one of them. Really? Every one of them. And they're these, so easily prescribed these, these are like, by these, doctors. Yeah, yeah. These are like, you know, you know, if I'm going on a long-haul flight, I just have to go to my local booze and speak to one of my friends and say, you got a Xanax? And somebody will have one. <laughs> Seriously. And, I, and it's just like, and you know, I have long conversations with my friend who I do associated with, and I'm... Um, and he's kind of, he's had his battles with depression. And we have long conversations. I'm like, and when I say, I said, you know, we, we're sharing similar feelings here, except you call yourself depressed and you're on um, medication. And I just see it as life, you know? Mm, it's mm. just, it's just, I think it's the guess. I mean, maybe I, sh people have said to me, maybe I should be on medication, but I'd rather like, I, I, life is supposed to be hard. We're the, like, when, did, that's my other issue with it is like, when was it supposed to be easy? If you look through the history of time, life isn't easy. It's a battle. It's a survival battle. Now, though, we're creating these – everybody wants to live forever and be comfortable and never have to walk too far or be too cold, especially here. There's heat and on. There's air conditioning. You're never – you're just all comfortable. That's, mm. That is a worrying state of affairs because when the shit hit the fan and it's going to um, – because, you know, we are draining the world of its natural resources and – that's 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 maybe two generations down the line that that'll become a real battlefield you know i was going to ask you about this later on but i was reading a, an article in my favorite daily the guardian the other day and one of the headlines was which absolutely shocks me but it seems to just go by the wayside with most people the world is on track to lose two-thirds of wild animals by 2020 uh live the living planet index shows that vertebrate populations are set to decline by 67 percent from 1970 to 2020 unless we take drastic action like this year so two-thirds of the animal population I mean, in the world are going to die. That's a catastrophe, isn't it, in 50 years? Well, if, if, that's, if that's the prediction for that, then you can say equally in 50 years, two-thirds of the human population will probably be dead. I mean, let's be honest. We're going to mimic, you know, in many ways them because most of them are dying out, not because we're hunting them, because we don't really hunt them as much as we used to. It's because of the, the, the environment around them's changed, the air, the heat. The, the natural Pollution, absolutely yeah and but so we are eating too many animals as well apparently if the america if everybody ate as much meat as they did in america then we would need four planet earths in order to well, harvest yeah. all the crops required yeah, to, yeah. to make all that beef i know it's i mean these are things that like day to day you think you know because the food and the other thing here is the food here is awful right the, i mean you can go and get good food but it's, i thought new it's, york had more michelin star restaurants oh, than most other places in the world i don't, do not trust it one bit it's right. most of it's slathered in like sauces and salts <laughs> and sugars honestly there's times i have to come home and just like steam some vegetables because i'm like i haven't right. eaten a vegetable properly in two weeks i eat these puny little salads that they offer as a side but you don't really eat a vegetable 
But I am ge- I'm genuinely concerned about the way that things are going in terms of the environment. And, you know, I speak to, like, my father, for example. He's like, this is all just scaremongering. We're going to be absolutely fine. And I believe that, you know, necessity is the mother of invention and that, you know, we will find ways in order to combat these problems. But it seems like we're just letting things go too far. Like, with the balance is well, being tipped I, I th- without yeah. us realising. Yeah, and I think the problem I have with it is, is like, you know, I've never a sci-fi geek, but when you look at these movies, you're like, that's what we're going to become. But if you look at them, they're like machines, robots, people yep. without, like people just going around. Brains in, in jars. Yeah, yeah. Brains like, in that's jars. what we'll become. I would rather go back to when we were like, you know, physical, like, you know, struggling with the, the heat and the, the cold. and But every day was a, a visceral experience instead of this like, you know, it's just we're, we're living vicariously through somebody else, through a computer screen. Oh, I, I could not agree more. And, and you know, I think that, that the worry for me is that, like, when the time comes, like I said, I'm saying firemen, soldiers, but when the time comes when we need people physically capable, able to deal with the hardships to and the struggles to, to, to reverse this change, they won't be capable. We won't have it. We have people who are like bodybuilders, but they couldn't lift. You know, like that's the other thing. It's like it's all surfing. You sound like yourself. You're digging yourself in under the under the ground already with your cans of baked beans. Oh, no, I'll 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 drink my I'll drink myself to death before that. <laughs> are we buggered? Do you think? Are we? Do you think we are buggered? Like, what's your projection? I used to have faith that like the world is an organism and you know and everything evolves and but then I I remember years ago having this you know like. Even organic things die. Like everything dies. The earth will die, whether it'll explode mm. or just shrink or something. It'll die eventually. Now, I didn't. Th- I always thought we'd adapt as humans. But when you you look at Mad Max, is that so unrealistic that one day there'll be compounds of people with tons of weapons and a mm. little bit of oil and some mm. water? You know, that that's the reality. I mean, it might not be that. But dystopia like, countries will become like that. It'll shrink Africa if it keeps on getting hotter. You know, it'll just be arid landscape. So everybody's yeah. living in one portion of the world, and so it'll become more brutal. The irony is, we'll end up going back to the brutal age where people will had to fight and scrape for basic resources. The problem is that we're becoming more short-termist in our approach than ever before. It seems, for example politicians sole aim it seems these days is to get re-elected in three or four years time so are they really going to pump or are they really going to lobby for billions of pounds worth of money or, or our, our income tax to plow into environmental issues which won't you know won't be won't be realized for another 50 years it's, yeah i had the conversation with my editor who i have a, i work on man of the world magazine and um and i was speaking to the editor yesterday about this we're talking about trump and we're saying that you know he yes. gives not an ounce he gives. He doesn't give a shit about future generations. He cares that his family will get an office if he gets an office. He will get an office and realize, my God, I hustled to 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 maintain my wealth. Um, these politicians, all they've had to do is get an office, and they're able to drain the country. I mean, it's so corrupt politics here. He will rape this country of its wealth, and and then just sound say the soundbitey things, and people are so dumb they won't realize. Until in 10 years, we're fucked. You know, I mean, he literally will speed up the process. If you think of the, the, the difference between mid 80s yeah. and today in society and the way we engage, the way we interact, what, how we go about our day to day lives, it's phenomenal. 
It really is phenomenal. American culture was so popular at that time, wasn't it? Every well, America used to be a place we looked up to, like my favorite, like musicians and artists Absolutely. and and um, writers, right? But in this in the seventies and even in the up to the seventies, but the eighties, the Reagan era, it all changed. It became about greed, success, how many cars you had, how big a house you had. Look how easy this is. But that always comes, and it was it's all about the the, the strongest will survive. It's like that's a terrible way, you know, it's like, it's to create a society. I mean, I'm not, I'm not one of these, like, you know, you know, you've heard what, how my feelings on immigration and I, I think it's, um, it can be a problem, but you know, I'm not wooly around the ears. It's just, but I think that you have to have compassion. You have to be able to help the lesser in society. My thing is like, if you eradicated wealth and educated people, gave them a purpose, a job, the other thing is like apprenticeships. Like people were practical before. People actually like crafted things. People spent, like a man with maybe not great intellect, but had great skill with his hands, could look back at his work and take a massive sense of pride that he helped build a bridge, a ship, right? A piece of furniture. But that doesn't happen anymore. It's so true. You know, like the, 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 that poor guy's probably working a machine that like, you know, it's just, it's, and it's all about, you know, we've become machine-like and it's all computerized we were machine-like then it became computerized and then what's next it's all interactive it's all you know it becomes virtual and when it becomes virtual we really are fucked because then kids kids will eventually not know what's they're already getting that what's the difference between virtual and reality they have it with porn and stuff there's a big complaint about the way kids are brought up looking at porn the way they have sex now is like so weird because it's just all pornographic you know so like they're having problems with that distinguishing between reality and virtuality virtual reality so it's i mean that's just the start of it and there's such a direct correlation between using your body and being happy as well you know using physical exertion creates endorphins so perhaps the reason why the average level of happiness is seems lower than ever is because everybody's the only exercise you're getting is with your fingers no yeah it's, it's totally true like my father is probably one of the most content men in the world, and um, him and my mum lived this idyllic, simple life. I mean, some people call it boring; it's ritualistic, but to me, it's it's actually what life is pure. They realised that their ambitions were limited, their abilities limited. My dad's like he's a truck driver, lorry driver, but he loves. He's great with his hands. Could build the house. You know, he's always thinking. He comes home from work, and he's just out in the shed. And he, when he's exhausted, he's happy has a nap on the, the couch, yeah, wakes up. And that's, it's just, it's, when you look, I look at my dad as a, he, he's a dying breed, right? And, they, and men like him won't exist in 50 years. Because I mean, my, it's, it's I'm different useless. for everybody, I'm but. Useless. I'm useless with that. You know, I'm, no, but I'm saying his type, I'm lucky enough he's my dad, but that type of man, capable man, that if Armageddon hits and you need somebody to build something, he's there. You know, where are these MacGyvers going to be in 50, 60 years? I mean, it, you know, it's, I don't know. It's just I worry that we're losing the survival instincts. We're all busy tubing comfort. Well, these, these people in charge are building their empires and they'll build their, like, tunnels and mountains and they'll, whatever happens, they'll be safe. I don't know. It's just I think the human psyche is kind of nihilistic anyway. So I do feel that there's a little, you know, as part of that, with it all, it's like, you know, fuck it, we're doomed anyway. Let's just, like, 
get what we can while we can. In realistic terms, do you think that is the answer to make to educate people in a more practical way again? Then I, I definitely think that. I think that, and also like your, your aspirations shouldn't be limited to wealth and fame. You know, like a man that makes a chair. Look at the pride. It's like, but we've lost that. I mean, you know, not many people now appreciate the beauty in someone handmade. It's not nothing. Everything's mass made now, right? So it's like, you know. There's a pride, there's a beauty in somebody laboring over something. It's back to, you know, when you labor over something, there's a real, you're engaged with it. That's why it's, that's why it's done by machines now. It's why Ikea, you know, like, have, everybody's got Ikea furniture now. It's, it's just, it's all about engagement. And, um, you know, you'd have to pick the wood. You'd have to, like, you know, you'd, men would know, like, what type of wood would work best. And, and like, but now people are just, they don't have that ability. They have to Google it, you know? Yeah. It's just, I just do think that, you know, it's like you were saying about exercise, the physical aspect of life. I think everybody agrees when they've worked out or they've done some exercise, they're much more content the rest of the day. They can handle their stress better, you know, for sure. I mean, I, I go, I've started boxing again at the local, one of the boxing gyms here. Yeah. And, you know, it's a stressful period just now for me. So instead of going out and doing the usual getting drunk, waking up with a hangover and like, you know, dealing with it that way with my other freelance friends, I, I'll go boxing for two hours a day. Nice. And I, I come out of that and I'm exhausted. I mean, you're no, you're no alien to physical exertion anyway, because you must be one of the only guys in the, one of the only stylists in the world that started out in the army. <laughs> it's absolutely crazy. It's part of what makes you so colorful, but how did that happen? Did you go straight that, from school to the army? It was the Navy actually. The Navy. Okay. Yeah, uh, yeah. I went straight. I joined when I was sixteen. And were you really uh, passionate about that idea at that time, or were uh, you... well, what it was? It was like '86. Britain, there was no jobs. I was fifteen. School bored me. I was like, you know, this. I, I ain't going anywhere. Nobody in my school went to university. Nobody. Very rural, working class towns. Like there's a bunch of them in the Strathmore Valley. It's all farming. Okay. So Is that the north of Scotland? Yeah, it's kind of middle. It's just okay. north of. Um, Perth and Dundee, mm-hmm. which is just an hour north of Edinburgh on the East Coast. Very rural, working class. Um, but, you know, it was either going to construction or join the military. And I had a cousin who was in the, the Navy and he seemed to have a glamorous life, always seemed to have a glamorous girl on his arm. So I thought, sort of, you know, I'll, I'll go and join that. Because I knew that in the Navy you get to travel. Sure. And so I mean, even though I wasn't aware of it, there was something, some part of me had a desire to see the world, you know? So, you know, I, I, I read a lot as a kid and I always think, think back to that. I, I could sit for hours just in my bed reading, travel off to other worlds. And I, and I do think that that, and it's still a problem today. Like, you know, instead of doing stuff, I, I could just lie on the sofa and read a book and be, I, I almost, my virtual reality was through literature, you know? Yeah, sure. And I, was just, I, could, I could transport myself back into certain things and there's that, nothing like, wrong with that so describe uh, the experience of being in the navy is it really the school of hard knocks or was it an amazing experience oh i mean when you're 16 and you're already physically capable i mean like and i you know i came always in fo- played football and stuff you're always a bunch of lads i grew up with a bunch of lads so i was used to the laddish environment knew my place in it knew when to talk out a term not to you know so i had that some people are like so socially awkward they join up and they have real struggles with it but for me, it wasn't a problem, you know. And, um, you know, the, the discipline, is, I kind of liked the discipline. I liked, you know, if you're in trouble, you did 20 press-ups, you know. I kind of liked that simplistic. 
nobody was talking behind your back. Nobody was like, you know, it wasn't very Machiavellian. It was like in your face. This is and so it wasn't a brutal environment then. It was. Uh, I wouldn't say it was brutal, but you know, I was able to deal with it. Maybe you know, because I box, or maybe you know, maybe I am. There's a brute in me, but you know, it it's certainly not an environment I would like. I think many people can revel in because it, it is tough, especially when you go on a ship and you got you know 48 guys sharing the mess room and you got four bunks and you're the top four bunk you know it's just it's pretty that's brutal you know living 48 yeah. men farting and like they're different personalities but a good sense of community though maybe oh bonding that's what good sense of camaraderie. i met my friend who i hadn't seen for 26 years and the years just rolled back we were 18 and he was 20 again and it was like as if we hadn't left, you know, it was Mad. amazing. That, so, so how much training, how much training is involved and how long did you spend in, in well, the Navy all together? Six years, base, six weeks, basic training, um, which is just like, you know, it's all physical. And then eight months in your kind of trade, because the difference between the Navy and the army, if you're on a ship, you have a role, a purpose. So everybody's okay. sort of a mechanic of some sort. And I was a weapons engineer and mechanic for the radars, wow. sonar. I mean, I changed plugs and fuses. That's all I did. Because, I mean, I had no interest in mechanics or electronics. And um, and so they had engineers that would do all that. I was just, you know, I would do the basic lifting and stuff like that. But, you know, it was like we traveled a lot. I was lucky enough to travel quite a lot on my ship. Yeah, where did you go while you were, while uh, you were in the Navy? How long were you in the Navy for? I was in just shy of six years. I did the minimum. Because wow. you have to do four years after the age of 18. Right. So I left a month before my 22nd birthday. So you were keen to get out. But where did you travel? Um, we did a six-month tour of the West Indies in America in 1988. Um, and that involved going around all the West Indian islands, like wow. Martinique, Guadalupe, um, Barbados, Bermuda. Um, we went to... Cuba, we went to Guantanamo Bay. We were the first Navy ship there for 25 years. Um, went to, How often are you docking up at these places? I mean, you know, basically, the longest we were at sea was two weeks to get across the Atlantic. Okay. And then you would do four days alongside, three days at sea. Like, because it's so expensive to run these ships that you, you spend more time alongside than you do at sea. So for five months you're doing that you know you go because we were literally stopping every week at a different place right. you know we went to colombia because it was part of the drug patrols that's what we were doing we went I to see. belize miami st petersburg fort lauderdale um you know it was just a nassau really an extensive trip and how and long do you get to spend at these ports well you'd be there for four days and so every day you, every one day of the four, you'd be on duty. So you'd basically be off for three days of the four. And you're getting and, absolutely wrecked, I'd imagine, with your mates. Well, well, this is it. You'd be on, like, what well, they call it Mediterranean duties. So basically, you'd finish at 10 a.m. If you weren't on duty that day, you started at 8, you were relieved at 10, and you'd go ashore. Right. You know, someplace like Antigua, we, we, would, we would anchor on the bay and have to take boats out to the beach. And the beach is empty. And it's like you can see 50 feet below where the anchor hits the wow. coral. And, you know, and you just go out to this beach would be a shack and they'd welcome the Navy in because it's a ritual. The Navy's been doing it for years. So you go ashore, you'd have a barbecue, you'd have your own beers, you play f soccer on the beach. Amazing. Sunburned to within an inch of my life. But it's just, it was amazing. That was like fantastic for like an 18 year old kid. 
who'd never seen all that stuff, you know. Going but it's snor- such a long, it's such a long haul in general. Like the fact you've got to do six years, there must have been some quite low points as well. Oh, well so like, once I left the ship and I moved back up to Scotland, um, you know, by 1988, you know, I was kind of like into the rave scene with me and my friends. So, <laughs> but by the time I moved up to Rosyth, which is just north of Edinburgh, it's 45 minutes from my parents, so I'd be home every weekend. Right. And that involved going to rave clubs and stuff like that. But that was interrupted when they sent me off to the first Gulf. So, um, oh my God. So you saw some action then? Well, I was there for We were like, um, we were part of a minesweeper support unit. So we were based in Dubai. So for the first month, like we went there in December. So for the month before the conflict started, we were mm. based in Dubai in the dockyard. And it was fabulous. We'd go into Dubai, which I hate to this day. Um, you know, we'd go to the expats clubs, we'd swim in the pools, flip with the girls, drink beers, go back. It was pretty, pretty Flirt good. with the girls and the rest. Well, all the locals, like, you know, the <laughs> expat community, you know. What did you not of, like about Dubai? I just, I, I find it soulless. I find it, it, it's to me in many of the same ways as Vegas is. I think the people are, sh- I don't like the people. So um, man-made, and I suppose my, the people yeah. have been the people yeah. have been implanted yeah. there as well, haven't yeah, they? Yeah, of course. And they're just they're doing it for the money. You know, it's just mm. you know, United Arab Emirates. I have a problem with Saudi Arabia, United Arab Emirates. If we want to talk about problem areas, you know, it's just all about greed and money. Mm. It's just soulless to me. You know, like that's why football players go there because it's soulless. It's devoid of any taste. You know, lots just of these to... places are having millions of gallons of water pumped into them every well, day as well, just exactly. to stop them from being desert. They're natural that habitat. That big island they've got there that they, all the football players were buying into. It was a, a, a map yeah. of the world. It, it's it, it's sinking into the to the um, ground. It's like it's crazy. It's just that's unsustainable. They got a big. We'd come from Jebel Ali, which is where the dockyard was, and drive into Dubai. It's a forty-minute drive, and then. You'd see this golf course with a merge on the horizon. Everything's just sand, and then this beautiful, lush, green golf course. And you're thinking, how much water does that mm. take to maintain that? You know, yeah, it's absurd. It's just, uh, to me, it's disgusting. It's in much the same way as I find Vegas disgusting. You know, mm, but um, you know, so you know, then we were in the golf that kicked off. It was a little bit of a like, you know, I really wasn't happy being there at that time because I really wanted to be out in the navy at that point. Sure. At, but, uh, at this point, at this point, you were you were really desperate to leave, were you? Well, yeah, I was spending every weekend at home. Like, I'd I'd come home. I just my week would be like go to work, play for the football teams. You know, the beauty was there was always you, know, you could take an afternoon off to do exercise. You know, if you weren't busy, so you could go to the gym, play football, do whatever you want, and go to swimming, play tennis. So there was a, a lot of activity. It was quite good that way. Mm. It was like being in college, basically. I mean, it really right. wasn't that difficult after the time because once they knew that you wanted to leave, they didn't really push you. So, but you got some practical skills rather than just uh, some well, kind of theoretical say, information that you may never use. Yeah, I wouldn't say I'm the most practical man, but you know, I feel like you know, you know, I've done my basic firefighting courses. I've done first aid. You know, I'm sure there's some point in my life they'll maybe come back to me. But you know, it, it was a good experience for sure. I mean, I'm so glad it, but, now in hindsight that, I've, that I did it for sure. So it was a good. So it was, overall, it was a good experience and something that put oh, yeah, you in good stead. I'm kind of like an old-fashioned, and I think like two years or a year military experience for everybody over the age 18 would would be so beneficial to society. I really believe it. Some kind of national service. 
national service, bring it back. I honestly think like there was wayward kids. Some people can't take it. Some people can get out of it because they're going to university. That's fine, right? But some people would need need it. And I, so but if, I think if you brought back national that, service, would I, if you brought back national service, would I have to go? Would well, I still you, have to go? Retrospective well, national service. Oh, no, no, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think you'd probably enjoy it. I think most yeah. people would. They'd be like, it's because it's a what's the it's. What I miss about it is like you wake up at eight, you finish at five, you're under the auspice of, you know, the crown all the time. So you have to be careful what you do. But it's, you know, it's very focused, you know, regimented life is mapped out for you. Yeah. And and, and to this day, like my friends, friends used to call me regimental because I still to this day, I'm better when my life's regimented. Yeah, yeah, sure. And there's so much gray area. Life has so much gray area these days, doesn't it? Especially for people like us, creative people who are freelancers and we have to create our own wealth and fortune and have to create our own timetables. Yeah, it's really, and it's helped me with that, the discipline of like, I map out my day so I fill it up because you have, to me, I have to do that. I go insane. Like the idea of a full day ahead of me, like, oh my God, it's like, some people like say, like, oh, it must be great. I'm like, no, it's terrifying. I'm a grown man. I need structure. I need mm. regiment. You know, it's like it, it helps me be creative to have some, you know. Routines. Yeah, yeah. Like you need a framework. Absolutely. Everybody needs it. And I think that that would give everybody a basic foundation. And, you know, but I do want to go back to like most kids wouldn't be able to hack it now. They'd be useless. Their attention yeah. span, their um, ability to take, um, industrial language you know when I, mean, I have assistants that are now like millennials 23 year old girls and stuff I, I have to be careful with my industrial language you know because i i grew up in the navy i was shouted at screamed at. have i have i made a mistake you were balled out but then you're going to have a drink with your boss later you know it's like but now you have to you have to like you know the snowflake generation you have to like tiptoe yeah. around them it's you know? become ridiculously PC, way too PC. Yeah, but I yeah. think, you know, not even necessarily national service, but practical applications in your life. For example, in Amsterdam in the 1930s, they got unemployed people to build what is today a huge forest in Amsterdam called Amsterdamse Boss. Yeah. And in order to get their benefits each week, they made them go down there and build this forest. I mean, that's it's a no-brainer, isn't it? No, I, I agree. And it goes back to what we were saying about physical labour. You have to employ these people in some capacity. Like, it can't, like, the government, these people are taking money from you anyway, so why not? You, they're, they're beholden to you, so use them. Yeah, you know? absolutely. But they're, they're so unhealthy now. You see some of these, like, in some of these inner cities and stuff, you're like, these people wouldn't, like, they're smoking 50 fags a day. Yeah. They wouldn't be able to do anything. Ever decreasing circles. And they're malingerers. It's like, we've, I think we've gone too far. <laughs> and my, in my view... We've gone too far. I think it would be impossible to implement things like that. We, we've gone too far from the, like my generation, I'm 46, I was born in 1970, was probably the last generation that had one toe in the post-war years. Mm. Like we'd still had people who, we knew people who'd been to war, sure. you know, and they weren't that old. And... Yeah, they weren't mm. that old. They were granddads, like young granddads. And, um, you know, and then, you know, the, then, computers came to schools and modernity swept in so we were that we were kind of on the cusp of it all so i you know but we're the The link between the old world and the new world exactly and i feel i actually feel today blessed that i was part of that generation um i think the baby boomers had it best (laughs) 
because mm. like the people in the 65s, they, they, they've had the best of it. They, they got the wealth, got to travel, got the houses at like ridiculously cheap prices, yep. let everything run up and didn't realize what they were leaving their kids. Mm. Especially here, they were happy to pay the high education costs, the, the medical care, not realizing that their kids won't be able to afford that. Sure. <laughs> their kids will be unlikely to maintain the health payments will not be able to send their kids. That's what's happening in America. Right? Generations of kids in the mid-30s are like, they're not having kids because they can't afford to send them to school. They, they, like, if I America was, just seems to me like it's in crisis, economically, oh, oh, culturally, sure. in oh, terms of its identity. Yeah, yeah. It really does seem like it's in crisis. No, for sure it is. It's like, uh, it's, it's lost its way completely. It's like a, a rogue child has taken over and it's like, you know, people's lives are, you know, and it's, I'm a big I, fan of I, Elon Musk, personally. I think that he's sort of one of these few pioneers and, and America could do with, a, I know he's not even American, but America could do with about 20 or 30 of those sorts of guys who are actually just trying to start new industries and start looking forward rather than just trying to sort of hoard what they've already got. Well, I mean, but that, that they'll be undermined by the um, industrial military complex, which is a hugely powerful force in America, you right. know? They, yeah. they want to batten down the hatches for the inevitable Armageddon. You know, they're nihilists, you know. Mm, mm. But, um, yeah, it's just, I think America is really, like, you know, I had an assistant that worked for me once. Her parents spent $250,000 to put her through fashion school. Wow. I was like, you sp they spent quarter of a million so you could assist somebody like me? That's, <laughs> That's absurd. Yeah, I'm absolutely. like, it's like, and what pressure. They were probably wealthy, obviously. But that's still like, you know, they've got to find, you know, 65, whatever, a, a grand a, a year. Yeah, it's crazy. That, I mean, and it's all the politicization, isn't it, which makes it so extortionate. Also, no, look at things things like, um, for example, uh, jails. Jails have become privatized oh, now. That, so oh, yeah. I watched a great documentary about that, how it's like it's become a booming industry. So they want when people you, in jail. They want people no, to break the law. Want, and and the, who's in jail? Black population, the Latino mm. population, right? they're in jail because it's easier to sweep them up off the streets. And that's what they'll create. They'll create a society where you're either in a secure, secure enclave. It'll be like South Africa was years ago. You know, just a, like an enclave of rich people surrounded by security guards, which will be people of my social class, right? Instead of going to the army or the navy, you'll, you'll, you'll be a security guard looking after the rich, you know, but you'll be well fed. Um, and then and you'll have also, the rest of the people be yeah. living in abject poverty with mm. nothing. And the rest of the people, the troublemakers, will all be in jail. That's yeah. it. That'll be society in, in 50 years for sure. Jesus. I'll, I'll be, if I speak to you for another hour, I'll be searching for the razor blades. <laughs> but um, also well, the, the other paradox with America, I suppose, is the fact that they have this huge problem with gun crime at the moment and violence. But they're one of the biggest, if not the biggest, producer of weapons in the world, aren't they? It's one of their biggest industries. Well, it's one of their only booming industries right now. Well, I mean, if you look at the, 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 the police have become paramilitaries now. If you look at how they dress, which is against the Constitution, then the army is not supposed to get involved in civil disputes. And but the military, you cannot distinguish between the police and the military now. That's scary. It's, I mean, it's absolutely. You see, when you've seen all those problems with the race riots and the police going down the street, you, you would have thought they were in Afghanistan. Right. I mean, it's it's incredible the power the police have here. Symbols of and, cold, steely authoritarianism. Well, what it is is the people in power, the people like Trump, the people who are making all the money. They need protected. Yeah. They don't give a shit about us. 
That's why they let guns run rampant. Like I live on the fringes of a huge project on the East River in Manhattan. I'm on the Lower East Side. Mm -hmm. Now, if I go out my door and go two blocks, the project starts and it goes on for like a mile and a half. Huge, big, right? There's shootings down there all the time. Wow. There's kids hanging. If I go to the deli down there, it's all like black kids hanging around. Classic The Wire yeah. situation, right? So a massive, massive wealth divide then, so basically. Then, yeah, then I go two blocks to the left and I'm in Hipsterville. I'm where it's all models, stylists, photographers. You know, it's part of Chinatown, but it's changed. It's become this like, you know, hipster enclave. I mean, I've been down here for 10 years. I never chased it. They chased me. Right. Um, but that's, that's America, you know, but I could go down there and I could walk through these kids and they will never accost me ever. Yeah. Right. I could walk my dog down by the, through the projects to the river, never get accosted because they know if they shoot or, or assault a white middle-class man, the police will come down there in the, in an army of police and will disrupt all the drugs trade, you know? So the, their, their ability to make money will be totally disrupted. All right. And the police will get heavy on them. They might get a couple of them arrested for outstanding warrants, etc. So they don't want that heat on them, mm. right? So I can walk through there perfectly safe. I wouldn't say the same in London. Right. <laughs> it's not the same in London for sure. You go down a. If I walked by a, a council estate of that size in London, I would. Well, I wouldn't do it for a start because the difference with kids in London is they'll just they want what you've got and right. they don't care. Yeah. You know, I've got a friend who takes inner city pictures of gangs here in East Brooklyn. East Brooklyn. East New York in Brooklyn, mm -hmm. and um, he shoots with all their guns and their Kalashnikovs, and then he's, he lives in London in Islington, and he goes to, he's met up with a bunch of kids there in the Estates, and he was telling me, he says, the, the kids in London, he said, are much more mental. Yeah, the real deal. Oh, he says, like, they're, they're just much more violent. He says, in the time that I've been photographing them, four of them have been killed. Jeez. He said, they're just stabbings, they're violent. He said, they just, they're, he said, they're really, and he's a, he was a crazy kid from Ireland, Dublin. You know, so he knows a crazy kid when he sees him. And he goes to like Latin gangs in uh, South Central mm. and he shoots all these people. And he says the worst of the, the, the British because they, they will fully engage in violence. Like they, they don't really just use guns. They don't mind yeah. getting their hands dirty. You right. know, that's, that's what I would say for the youth of today. The, the only trade and the, the, the only thing <laughs> they like to engage is with their fists. Crime. Uh, you know, they, they do like, they do like to like, they like that visceral experience of violence. They've got know? it all the time with their PlayStations, I suppose. Well, not, uh, you know, indirectly. But uh, so do you think, um, speaking more broadly, do you think prosperity requires poverty? Oh, sure. I mean, who, who, who waters, who landscapes your garden? Who, uh, who delivers your food? Who does your laundry? You're too busy making millions. Right. Of course, it needs... That's the thing. We've become a service. So it's in the it's in the interests of the establishment then to keep the the poor poor. Keep them poor. Keep them ignorant. Which is, I mean, education is everything. I think we were much more educated years ago. Like the civil rights movement wouldn't happen today. I mean, like nobody marches about healthcare and education costs in America. Not one march. You know, you still got the civil rights movement here because they're still fighting for equality, right? Because it's their they're people that are in the impoverished areas killing each other, you know? But, mm. um, you know, like, there's no real rational debate or protest. You can't protest in America because, and that's why they create the debt system. Kids can't protest because they go to these colleges, it costs them a fortune, they're paying off their education for years. Mm. And just as they've paid it off, 
they might get married and want to get a mortgage. So they're in debt again. Sure. The cycle of debt keeps people under control. Mm, absolutely. You know? I could not agree more with you. I'm totally on the same page. And, that, and, that, and that's why they have them, you know, it's why they've created this system. It doesn't you know? make it doesn't make a lot of people happy either. You know, if I, I'm all about happiness, and if if it does make you happy, then great. But it seems to me like the credit card is the object of most people's misery in this modern world. Of course, I mean, we, and we've all got them. We all, all one time ran them up to the to the limit, and then you have to pay. You never pay them off. It's just it's a, it's something hanging over you. You've got to work every month to pay your bills and more and more like middle america they always talk about the middle class in america i was watching that anthony weiner um recent the documentary about him which is actually fascinating and you should watch it i don't even chance. know who that is it's the guy who was sexting with a girl oh, right. yeah yeah sure sure he's sure. married to huma who's the clinton's um aide okay yeah i was reading and about it's, him it's this, yeah so it's he, he's been involved in this controversy he was running for mayor um, but his, his, his mayoral slogan was he's fighting for the middle class. He never once, he, and he, he was favorite at one point until he got caught up in another scandal. And all his slogan was he'll fight for the middle class. Now, if I was black or Latino, I'd be like, what the fuck about me? Yeah. You know, yeah, they don't sure. care. Do you it's think that politicians, like, I still like to think that politicians go into politics with sort of idealistic you know, ethos is, but then they just get chewed up by the system. Do you think politicians actually go in for the power these days, by and large? I mean, for sure. I mean, somebody like Tony Benn, who I'd listen to every day and still listen to old speeches and stuff. I mean, they're few and far between. People like that, people who genuinely care. Nowadays, it's like the dorky men who love the power. They're seduced by the power. That it gives them, you know. Also, a sixty-eight-year-old and a seventy-year-old running for president now. I mean, no, okay, I'm no. not being ageist, but it's it's a real. No, but look at Washington. Look at Washington's awash with like grand. It's the only business where you can be more powerful at sixty-eight and seventy. We'll be long gone by that time. I'll be irrelevant in my business by fifty almost. But <laughs> they, they guys, they have. That's where their, their career becomes extinguished. Sure. It's um distinguished. Sorry, they um. They kind of like it's an old man's game, right? But you know, so you've got these men in their forties and fifties when you're supposed to be physically, you're at an end, your testosterone's down. They they become seduced by power. They're reinvigorated by power. So they get and chewed it, up by the system rather than going into it for the power. Well, in the I think they've got a personality fault in the first place. What about Barack? I mean, like I, the way that I view Barack is that he was an idealist whose hands were tired as soon as he became president. What what do you think about that? No, I, I totally agree. I think he became the fall guy, an intelligent man. But I also think he, I think he gave up a little bit. I don't think he railed enough. Right. You know? Yeah, sure. And do you think uh, do you think he would uh, get a, a, a landslide victory if he was allowed a third term? I don't know. People went against him because, like I said, I think they thought that he didn't actually do enough. Hmm. Um, there were certain aspects of his. Re- I, I mean, the last four years for sure. I think he gave up. I just I think he knew it was too hard. I mean, Obamacare's it's it's seems to be that's get, he a, seemed to be getting whiter very, every year that he spent in power. He got whiter. He became yeah. more ghostly and he became more Caucasian with every year because he just looked so tired well, and, and weary. Bulbs in the White House. <laughs> I, I don't. I, I mean, it's just they're puppets. The president of the United States, aren't they? I mean, oh, absolutely. Anybody I mean, if, who thinks that politicians run the world are uh, sort of sadly. Well, of course, uh, so was it? Trump's grown about make America great again. He's on about like 
things being made in America. And I think it was Chrysler or somebody like that. They've just announced that they're making the small cars in Mexico. It's just like <laughs> way to go to like, and they just announced it publicly. Like it's just, it's like that is if anything proves that they could care. Less. Give a shit about <laughs> what the fucking president of the United States says they should be doing. Hmm. It's it, that's it's mental to me. It's, it's incredible. Huh? We need some. We need a new generation of visionaries. I, I'm I'm really hopeful. Well, I'm an, I'm an eternal optimist, and I'm well, hoping that after yeah. Brexit, five years, ten years after Brexit, when everybody realizes what a terrible mistake it was, and when America has to go through Hillary Clinton and and, and or or Donald Trump, you know, they're going to realize well, there's going to be yeah, a reaction could, to that, isn't there? Yeah, definitely. I mean, I honestly, I have faith in the youth of today because some of them are totally turned off by all this stuff. They're becoming turned off. The smart ones are realizing, like, I can't have any of this. I'll never have, like, some of these kids are waiting for, they'll never have a mortgage mm. because it's, it's, things have become so expensive. Sure. So there's going to be a revolution. I mean, if you're middle class and you've grown up comfortable, yet you're looking at the future and think it's bleak. You're not prepared for that bleakness. So you have to create a revolution in order that that doesn't fulfill itself. Yeah, you know? yeah. So I, I do think that kids will have, will have to become more political, will have to rail against the system because they'll have no other option. They're not going to have the same bright, shiny future that their parents did mm. or their grandparents. It's just not going to happen. Like you can't, if the average medium apartment in new york is eight hundred thousand for a one bedroom or something right it could be more than that Jeez. it could be a little less but and you've got to put down 20 percent. and your parents they're struggling with their pension is all a bit effy now yeah. right so they've remortgaged their house they're, they're tapped out you know they, they've got enough to see them through the to the twilight years but so Just. where are you going to get that money from you know and um, so, so are more people renting them would you say these days in new york well, there's still a robust um, market for first buyers. I don't know where the money comes from, but I, I can predict that it's going to die out because you read it all the time here. Paul, like the pension plans here, they, 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 they put the pensions in hedge funds and the hedge fund lose money. So the pension's gone. You know, look at BHS. You know, the pensions have gone. <laughs> it's like you've worked for 25 years for a company, comfortable in the knowledge that when it's all done, You'll get your pension at the end, but he's spunked all the money. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> he's sitting on his luxury yacht, hanging I mean, out on his is, yacht. Yeah, that's, that's the future. That's what's going to happen. It's like Robert Murdoch started it. You remember him? All the pensions gone. Yeah. And it's like, and it'll happen more and more because people are greedy. They're gambling, like the whole hedge fund thing, Wall Street. That's just all a racket. It's a gamble. They're just gamblers, you know. Gambling with other people's money is that, you know. Do you really think we're headed towards Armageddon? Because everybody, I ask everybody this question, and most of them say, yeah, we're going to be all right. You know, necessity is the mother of invention. We'll react to the challenges and we'll, we'll get through all these problems. But My problem is that, um, you know, the toys we have. Our phone, for instance, our phone, right? I mean, I never have my phone in my hand. I could be watching football or watching a movie, listening to something. I'm scrolling through all the different apps, distracted. You know, and I'm like a 46-year-old man who can sit and read for two hours a book, you know. So I've got the discipline. But kids, I just everybody's just too distracted to notice that we're heading, we're heading shit. 
Somebody needs, we need a rally. In I think you've absolutely nailed it. I really think that is the problem. People aren't aware of what's sort of coming, the problems that exist. And I mean, when was the last time? I mean, for instance, the only time I have real political debate and conversation is with my editor at Man of the World, Chris, because right. he's intelligent, shares the same viewpoint. We talk about Trump, talk about kids, talk about the future, because, you know, we try to frame it for the magazine. And um, But if I was to speak like this, um, to my friends and my local Americans, they'd be like, oh, dude, this is depressing. Stop that. Why don't you just leave? And I'm like, no, I care. But I seem to be like, I seem to be the only one. I'm denounced as some miserable git. Right. But I'm actually, look, I'm just like, you know, I'm ringing a bell here to warn the townsfolk that fucking... The whirlwind is on its coming. way. Yeah. <laughs> but nobody's listening. So fuck it. I'll go to the bar and I get drunk and you'll all be buggered anyway. Yeah. It- but, you know, it just... There's no debate. There's no intelligent conversation. I mean, I start talking about pensions and health plans and um, uh, and kind of uh, an education here. People like they get so pissed off with me. Like, well, if you don't like it so much, leave. I'm like, no, I'm talking. I'm feeling for you, Americans. Mm. Has nobody told you that this is wrong? You shouldn't have to pay ten times the not what normal people have to pay to have an operation. Mm. I mean, people go bankrupt here if you break a fucking leg. Yeah, it's crazy. You know? I'll have to drag myself to the airport, you know, in a brace. <laughs> I'll be able to fly first class though, and I'll be able to turn up my doctors in, the, in my local town, and he'll go. Right, we'll set it now. We come back in six months. Mm. And I'll have to wait six months, but I won't be fucking bankrupt. Mm. You know, it's like they just, they're impatient. They're like, well, we get treated straight away. I'm like, well, I, I, and I doubt, I mean, I've been with my ex-girlfriend to the doctors a few times about stuff and the treatment and stuff is just, it's shocking. Like I, I once went to a, a skin guy, a dermatologist here and um, with my girlfriend, we turned up, she had the appointment. He turned up two hours late. Right, with a big venti cappuccino, <laughs> and was like, "Hey!" And he just brushed in, and then we had to wait a further twenty minutes while he settled. I'm like, "And you're paying?" She because she had no healthcare, she had to pay a hundred and fifty dollars just to see him. A hundred and fifty dollars. We had to wait two hours to see him. I mean, I know you have to wait ages in the NHS, but it's free. Um, yeah, so it's kind of like. You know, but you, if you talk yeah, about private, the, private you, health, really irks me in general. It, it irks me. I think this should be the basic provision of any government in any country. The basic tenets of society are education, right, and health, right. Absolutely. And in America, they cost so much money. So they have sold those those things that those two things create. They help create compassion, right. And without both of those, you can't have compassion. Mm. And so immediately, this is an incompassionate, selfish place. You can't afford to be ill. You cannot afford to be ill. Yeah. And you can't afford to put your, your kid in good education. But the poor people are the most susceptible to illness. So paint a picture of paint a picture, if you can, then, of what, what will the world look like in 100 years? I know it's such a crazy question, but paint a picture for me. Well, like I said, it'll be... Mad Max. Well... Lesser degree, but like enclaves, ghettos, the poor will be in one ghetto. We won't live side by side because it'll be too dangerous. So it'll be like South Africa was. You'll have like, people will move out of the cities because there'll be nothing in the cities, right? Mm. Or maybe they'll all move in the cities and the cities will become like Hong Kong and all the rich people will move out. Like Manhattan will just be for the poor, scrabbling away while the rich live on a mountaintop in the Bronx. It'll switch. 
I mean, there's a concentration towards the city still, isn't there? I think in the 2012 was the first time in, in, in yeah. modern civilization where more people were living in the cities than, were, than outside the cities. Well, that, that happens when things are troubled, so people come for jobs. Sure. But the cities used to offer industry, but now they're nothing. They're just like restaurants and entertainment. More expensive So I'm not well. sure that same, that same thing will happen. But I think it'll just be enclaves of rich people, poor people, imprisoned people. Right. And that's just, that'll be society. Gated and communities. Dated communities, there'll be people who have to let bridge the two. They're the ones that are going to live the most hellish lifestyles. Because if you're in the ghetto, you've got animal, feral instincts anyway. Whereas the people who are the middle classes who aspire, but they're cheek to jowl with those that are like, you know, feral. So it's it's just you know it's very much you can see that happening now. I can. I just yeah. I'd like to think that somebody's going to put a spanner in the works and say this is getting ridiculous. And you a new generation of of conscientious people who will just say we've got to make changes. We've got to realise that the world is about community rather than about the individual. Look at Zach Gold Zach Goldman right. Right. Yeah. Look at him. Years ago, he was touted as the fresh, you know. Um, a new wave of politicians. Like he was, he kind of like a bit left field. He was about environment. Then he joined the Tory party. Mm. You know, it's like, it's kind of like, I'm just using him as that because he's the last one I can remember. Who's the new voices? Yeah. Who's the new voices in British politics that inspire you? Mm. Well, there is nobody. I mean, it's a complete vacuum. British. Well, like if nobody's, if nobody's like, where are the next Martin Luther Kings, the next JFKs? The great orators, they were flawed as I'm human. a fan of Corbyn, personally. I know that people think he's a bit too sort of uh, radical, but yeah, I'd, I'd, I'd take him over any other politician or leader. In- I've, I've never, I've not, he, he kind of puts me off a little bit. I just, I think he's too old labour. That's because he's not a salesman. He's not a salesman like Boris Johnson. He's the antithesis of Boris Johnson, who's just a salesman. My point, though, is that you still have to get the message across. It's why um, Gore failed against Bush in that first election yeah. years ago was because he Can became I... across too intelligent. Too, mm. he, the, the, the right always has a simple, direct message, and the, less, the left gets woolly-mouthed. And I think that that's what's the problem. It's all about somebody needs to come in and with great oratory skills and, and drive that message home to the youth. Because it's not us, it's the youth to change. Otherwise, it'll never happen. And who's sending that great message? Even the music, like there's no clash. Like, nobody's like mm. the clash would send messages through the songs nobody's doing that nobody gives a shit yeah they're all just it's just you know we're all so busy like I mean, for instance the the selfie the phone the fact that your camera you can take a picture of yourself that is people's world they're, they're in these amazing places and they've got their hand extended looking up at the camera it's just like that to me is a symptom Oh, it's that crazy. Symbolizes, that symbolizes what's wrong. Until we can turn the camera away again, or even better, put the camera down and enjoy the vista, we're fucked. Oh, absolutely. Technology's taken over. Have you seen any of Charlie Brooker's Black Mirror? No, I haven't seen that yet. No, is it any good? I mean, the ideas are superb. And it's all about a dystopian near future where technology is just completely taken over, where your life, for example, is all about how many likes you've got on Facebook or the latest social media thing. And everybody's just completely hellbent on likes. And so their profile no, improves. Of course. And- I mean, 
I mean, I make jokes when I'm on set. Oh, I'm only doing this job so I can get a nice Instagram picture, right? My my virtual life is way more exciting than my oh, real absolutely. life. Oh, absolutely. People project I'm this fucking, incredible. Yeah, it's like, you know, when I go on, like, shoots and they're like, you're Alan Kennedy? And I'm like, fucking hungover 46-year-old man, you know, flirting with flirting with that side of chubby, you know, it's like, you know. Rubbish. <laughs> it's been a fascinating conversation so far, but I must ask you how on earth you went from the army to being one of the leading fashion stylists in the world. Well, I mean, I, I'm the, you want the easy answer? Ecstasy. <laughs> <laughs> tell me, tell me the I, link, I got what a, happened? Well, tell I, me the I got story. In, well, we, well, I used to be a football casual, so we were like, we were always into fashion. And the 80s were amazing what? in Britain. You'd have mods, rockers, football casuals, people who were into the Smiths, and it was all the fashion. And you'd have working class peacocks, men who were in Tashini tracksuits, peacocking, but hard as nails. <laughs> it was brilliant. To me, that was, life couldn't be better. It was like people peacock, they dressed well, the music was vibrant, it was fantastic. Was but this in Glasgow? Were, were you living in Glasgow at the no, time? No, East Coast. Okay. I was in... And um and it and it was kind of and it was a vibrant life, you know. It was visceral. It was real. It was like you get a punch in the mouth. And it was, I don't know. I I love that time. I'm kind of I like that physicality of life, you know. Mm. Um, and it was a great time. And so I was always a football casual. And then I went, you know, I would I did that six months in the West Indies. Came back to Scotland, and my friends were all into like rave culture. I was like, what the hell? I've been away six months, and it all changed. They all got long hair, popping eckies. All like. Yeah, well, speed first, and then it was Ekes, and then acid and stuff. It was just like, and then it became like, you know, and then I was at home more often. So whenever I was home on leave, we'd be out clubbing, and it was amazing. You know, like, you know, the rave culture of the 89, 90 was just fantastic. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, everybody was like experimental with dress, so you could wear like big hats, and it was kind of like, I don't know, it was like nobody was judging anybody. Nobody wanted to punch you just because you had a funny hat on, you know, because Scotland can be like that. So it was a very like individuality fantastic. was cherished rather than yeah scorned. yeah celebrated like you you were kind of looked upon so it's kind of like I was able to f explore fashion a little bit I mean I was always in it and I asked a friend who was living in London who the people were that put the clothes on these models and he said oh they're stylists and I was like that's what I'm going to do and he said nah they're too cool they're all like these flamboyant gay guys I said no that's what I'm going to do and I remember driving to the, my local club with my friend on speed. I shouldn't really say that. Really. Yes, you should. Um, and they were on speed, and I'm chatting. That's what, I'm going to be a stylist, and I still had a year to go in the Navy. And I'm like, I'm going to be a stylist. <laughs> and I made the decision when I was in the Navy on speed. And <laughs> I remember at the time I was 20, and I used to read the Face magazine and Arena. Brilliant. And I was Thanks. like, I'm going to be the fashion director of Arena by the time I'm 30. And I was. I ended up being the fashion director of Arena by the time I started. And I wanted to work for the Face magazine, and I did. Fantastic. You know? But how did you get into it? Was it just like, you know... the Well, so then I did, like, I met my girlfriend who became my wife, um, now divorced, but, like, we met. I was 21. She was 19. She'd been part of, a, like, a bit more middle class than me. So when I was leaving the Navy, she helped me apply for college. And eventually I got into university in Glasgow because we were doing a fashion and business degree okay. and she was going to Glasgow University so I went to this Caledonia University which was offering this degree course so I figured because I was also accepted to London College of Fashion but that was going to be expensive living in London and she was going to Glasgow so I followed her to Glasgow and in the first year we had to do a work placement and I got 
managed to somehow through just scurrying around find contacts the fashion director of the Scotsman newspaper John Davidson he I got in touch with him met him and he took me on as an intern so for six weeks I was working with him in Edinburgh traveling through from Glasgow and just picked up the basics of like you know styling and also journalism because he'd have me write 250 words of pun ridden stuff you know because if I, I mean I love I'd love to be a better writer than I am. It doesn't come easy to me. I mean, if that's one unfulfilled thing, is like I would love to write. Uh-huh. It's the thing that gives me most pleasure, uh-huh. even though I'm, I know I'm not very good at it. I'm, I'm basic. I can write because I, I, I've read enough, but I don't write naturally. It's something, uh, when I dream about my days in the future, it's me by the ocean writing something. A pen you know? in but your I, mouth, looking off into the ocean. Yeah. But it would be much more like, it would be more real. It's not like, I couldn't do fiction because my imagination is not so fantastic. But, you know, I, some, writing something, because I do think that writing is such a wonderful vocation mm. and it's so fulfilling because it's torturous. Mm. Fiction is where the so, money is, unfortunately. No, I know, I know, I know. But I don't have that, my, you know, I don't, I don't think I have that much of an imagination. But although I did, I don't have this one idea. I've always got this toying with this one idea to write about a Jacobean kid who stows away to America, you know, and meets up with Billy the Kid. And, you know, because I'm fascinated by Westerns and, you know, Billy the Kid and all those guys, the Jesse James, they were all kind of around at the same time. Uh-huh. I like the idea of this guy was like from Scotland ends up around there. You know, there was a movie made that was kind of similar, but recently I saw. So the, guy, but, um, so the guy sort of ends up there and follows them around and sort of journals yeah, about what they're the, up Yeah, well, he becomes the friend of. He's yeah, not yeah. the like. So it's just kind of he goes to the West. That I, I think I could write a book like that, you know, like that, that 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 mix between historical fiction that you get. I love those books, mm, you know, because mm. um, it blends both and you fill in the gaps and you embellish. I mean, I think I, I probably have enough imagination to like, you know, because I'm fascinated by history. Sometimes I wish I'd just been a history teacher, you know, mm. a university someplace in Glasgow teaching students with my tweed jacket, you know, blethered <laughs> on about the First World War. Because I'm like turning it to my uncles. That's all I read now is like World War Two and World War One and, like, you know, and stuff like that now. One of my best friends is on a 57-hour audio book about the Third Reich at the moment. <laughs> oh, really? Oh, my God. He was speaking German. That's like, that's a, I've never tried audio books, to be honest. Yeah, they're good fun. They're good fun. Again, I suppose they may be representative of modern technology and uh, this sort of instantaneous I, culture. Yeah, I don't know. I like to like create my own voice. Mm. It would worry me if I didn't like the guy's voice. I'm like, I'm not believing you. It's a really good point. I don't know. Yeah, so I really like, because I do think it helps you create the voice in your head. That's, you the, know, that's, the, that's the beauty of a book, isn't it? You yeah, create yeah, the no, characters. You, you fashion them and they're in, they're in your they're a version of you always. Absolutely. Or you see yourself in some character. It's usually the lead character because that's the power of books. And I think but, that that's why I'd, I've never met anybody who told me that they watched a film adaptation of a book and preferred the film. Yeah, yeah Everybody same. prefers the book because they create their own characters. Because you did your own casting. Yeah, and the film like, was no. shit. No, I know, I know. Everybody. I know, I, I, exactly. I haven't ever come across that myself. So in a word, was the university uh, qualification essential to what you went on to do? And I'll... I've got a BA honours in consumer management, fa- specialism, fashion. And with, without that, do you, would you not have got where you got to? Well, I wouldn't have probably like, made, got the introduction to John Davidson at the newspaper and worked with him. Because then I, then I worked with John, then he went to the Herald. So I took over his weekend fashion 
double pa- like four pages. Ah. I was the one that took over that. So now you had to go like, and find the stories as well. Yeah, I'd, I'd come up with the stories, write the 250 words, you know, and that was basically is what I'm doing now, you know, but I used to love it, you know, mm. and I'd get my money. And then, then I was also doing a page for the evening times in Glasgow. Okay. So I felt like I was making 400 a week and like, you know, quite wealthy and then working in a shoe shop. It was actually a fun time, you know, because I had this autonomy and I was dealing with the editors and doing interviews and I'd never had any real training in that. I just was able to pick it up and maybe had a natural um, talent for it, but it was a fantastic. And it's, so by the time I moved to London when I was 27 and started, I worked at the Telegraph for four, five months. Ah. And um, as an intern there, and um, that was quite an experience. But I was already quite experienced, you know, because I've been doing it all on my own. Well, that so gives you a really good back. profile working for the Telegraph, doesn't it? I'm sure, especially at that time, you know, it was a. No, it was great. And then I met some stylist who worked for the Face magazine, and he, um, I started working with him, and so I'd go and hang out at the Face every day, just like. And in the end, I was just like, they'd be like, "Hey, Alan, you want to style this guy?" And I'd be like, "I'll do that page," and, you know. And I just did whatever they gave me. Brilliant. And eventually, the editor would have good, great faith in me. And that um, was the point. I, that was the tipping point, was it, in terms of starting to do really high-profile people? And when you started um, yeah, associating I mean, I with the face, like, I always say, like, the face was such a well-regarded Absolutely. magazine, and I was and I was willing to do anything because I loved that magazine. So. You know, and I proved myself time and time again. I didn't get ahead of myself. I wasn't too greedy. Whenever they gave me a job, I did it, did it well. So the editor had great faith in me, and he was the one that recommended me eventually to the fashion director job at um, Arena Magazine. Which is, okay, which is what you did after The Face? Yeah, so Arena Magazine was the met the, the, the men's magazine. It was part of the same publishing house as The Face, uh-huh. Wagon. Um, so I took over there and was there for three years before you know i came to america you um have styled some of the biggest a-listers in modern culture we've got george uh, according to my research we've got george clooney matt damon who i'm a big fan of bradley cooper yeah. run dmc uh helen mirren yeah. and david beckham that's correct uh, yeah that, did that all happen once you got to america or was some of that going on in england uh, no that's all america it's pretty much like vanity fair because i one of the things was I, I wanted to do a cover for Van. It's one of the reasons I left the Arena magazine is because I, w- I was coming over to America a lot and I, I used to look at Vanity Fair and I thought, I love Vanity Fair to this day. Mm. I mean, it's less brilliant than it was, but... It's an institution, uh, isn't it? Yeah, I just love the... It's got great pictures. It used to have amazing pictures and brilliant editorial, you know, which is... A, I don't think any other magazine does it other than National Geographic. Mm. Um, like They're the two magazines I'll buy when I'm on a plane okay. without fail every month. Um. But I also thought I'd love to do a cover of Vanity Fair. And so when I first moved over here, the Beckham thing came off um, because I was just about to move here. And what the stylist who tried to do it on one day, the shoot was cancelled. So we had to fly to Mad- I was over here. They said, Alan, do you want to do it with Annie Leibovitz? I'm like, for sure. So I was in New York at the time and flew to Madrid to do the shoot with Beckham. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, and he, he turned up late. So we had like, you know, it was just a funny day. We'd be there on set at six o'clock. Annie Leibovitz has four sets, right? So she set up the set and she goes like, can anybody here play soccer? And I'm like, oh, I can. Thinking it's a chance to like juggle the ball, do little skills, right? And it's a huge crew of people. Yeah. So I got on this crash mat because she wanted them doing a bicycle kick. She goes, Alan, I want you to do a bicycle kick. And I'm like, yeah, fool, yeah, I can do that. So For I what tried. purpose? Why, why was she getting... That, that she, wanted the, she wanted to be able to frame it. I see, post. okay. 
the lighting and get all that right. So when he came, because we knew we'd have him for maybe an hour and a half, mm-hmm. just like, you know, well-oiled machine, all prepared, sure. camera set, because she had all these different setups. So I was like, oh, yeah, and we tried one, and she was like, oh, that's great. And then she was like, Alan, take your top off. And I was like, why? <laughs> he was like, well, he's going to be topless. I'm like, yeah, but he's like three color tones different than me. I'm like, I'd been in New York for 10 days eating burgers and drinking with my <laughs> friends. I was like, I had to take my top off in front of the crew, and I'm so pale, oh, you know. Like, like, and I'm like, oh, covering my nipples, because the fashion editor, who I was a good <laughs> friend with, was there, and she was laughing her head off. I'm like standing on this crash mat. And then I overcame, when I did the first one, I thought, oh, my God, I look so fat, you know, because you're looking at the Polaroid. Because, thankfully, it wasn't digital then. It was Polaroid. Mm. So only, you know, only a few people could see it. But then I was like, well, I've not done that right. So then I became obsessed with my technique. So I'm doing these bicycle kicks. And I thought I was doing them really well. And my only regret is I never got a Polaroid from that shoot because it would have been so Annie Leibovitz, you know, me topless. I probably looked thinner than I thought I was. But, um, but the, the bicycle so then, kicks probably weren't as good as you thought they were. No, exactly. No. But then, so he's delayed. And then we're, we're having this conversation, the producer, me and Annie Leibovitz, about it's raining and it's a bit dark. And, and I mentioned in conversation, because I'm used to being an integral part of any shoot. And I said, you know, like there's these, when I was in southern France, there are these little bull runs where they like, they train the bulls and stuff. They're really cute and small and intimate. And she was like, right, let's find one. So she sent all these people off, and the producer tore a strip off me later on. <laughs> she said, you never suggest an idea without going through me. Uh, like, I wasn't used to it. You know, like, it was just a way of working in America. Yeah. So we get this, they find this location. We strip down everything an hour before he comes no, and move uh... to this location. He gets there. I have all this. Like, my idea was to make him look like a Le- 50s Levi's guy, right? Okay. For the first cover of the USA that was how I got it. I gave this mood board that was kind of like him and Levi's denims, biker, like white T-shirt. Nick I mean, Kamen like, style. Yeah, yeah. It was kind of like when he was all fucking Euro denim, ripped D&G. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Get him away from that because he's a handsome guy. So anyway, we have him. We've got an hour. So I go, David, I've got this vintage Levi's. Like the budget was immense. We had these vintage Levi's that cost like hundreds of dollars. Mm. And I'm like, look, these are really cool, these biker boots. And now that's what he wears kind of, right? So I'm like, look, it's your first cover. I think you have to look, like, tap into that Americana thing. Hmm. And he turns up and he's like, no, I like these. And they're like the D&G ripped jeans. And at that point, I was like, oh, fuck it. All right, whatever. <laughs> and he was nice enough, right? But he was just like, no, I like them. I want to wear them. So, so what, like, he oh. gets to choose then? Well, she's just like, Alan, let's hurry up. And it's like, you're on the, you're on the clock. You've spent all day. You literally have 10 minutes. Hmm. So then we get to this bull ring and she set up the crash mat in the middle of the bull ring. The sun's starting to come through now in Madrid. It's like April or something. And um, she goes, Alan, so David comes out. She goes, Alan, show David what you were doing. And I'm like, <laughs> You're teaching him oh, how to I, do scissor kicks. I said, a Scotsman <laughs> teaching the England captain how to do a bicycle Brilliant. kick. And he, comes, he came out all oiled and bronzed and in shorts, right? <laughs> and I'm like, I'm not fucking taking my top off now, you know? <laughs> Because earlier on, that's why I forgot the part of the story. Was earlier on, she'd made me take my top off, right, <laughs> to practice it before he came. And by that time, the sun was coming out. So this was this white Scotsman in the middle of this bull ring <laughs> with his top off, doing a bicycle Next kick. To Bex. And like there was, and everybody had brought like everybody like he, women loved them so much that the caterer had five other women with them. Right, <laughs> there was women looking out, looking on the the um the the 
flats by the, the bull ring. There was just women everywhere. Oh, and there yeah. was me in the middle of this arena. Like, I've never been so embarrassed. Like, because uh, my skin was so white, I was glaring. You, you know? probably would have looked great if you'd been on your own, but it's standing next oh. to David Beckham, you're fucked. No, I know. That's why I said, well, well, that was before he came. And then when he came and I seen him all bronzed and top off, I said, I'm, I'll show him, but I'm not taking my fucking top off. I was adamant. And he was laughing. But um, I've met him since and he can't remember. But I, I guess because he, like, you know, mine was so technically great. Like he did a fucking karate kick that the ball went sky high. Was he like Golden Balls? You know, I've met him a few times, actually. I mean, never recognised him each time because he's like, you know, meets so many people. I, I like him. He's a nice nice guy. Very unassuming. Almost too unassuming, you know? Mm. Um, not showy. Very humble. I mean, I've got all the admiration in the world for him. I, I mean, his wife as well. She, I've met her a couple of times. She's, they're kind of like an Essexy nice couple who have just, they bring up their kids well. They're really, I mean, I mean. So the public, very, the public persona is pretty precise then. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, I mean, I think that like she's funnier. I think than she comes across in, and real like in public, she's very guarded. But um, you know, she's trying to prove herself. So I get it to a degree because people are quick to like, you know, why why is she with him? But I could see perfectly why she's with him because she's a driving force. You know, because she you know, really is, isn't she? She's really driven that brand brilliantly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. and and it's and it's and it's and it's well looked upon in the fashion industry. So I think she gets all the credit in the world. I mean. David's just lucky he's a handsome, affable, really nice, humble man, mm. you know? He's probably maybe not the most intellectual, intelligent, but, you know, but he's, he's I mean, I, I couldn't criticise either of them. I think they're very, like, uh, they're, a, they're a celebrity couple that people could do well to admire more. You know, people want them to fail, which is really sad because they've got three balanced kids, four, and they bring them up hands-on. You know, you never see them with nannies. You know, they're like scuttling through the airport with all of them. You know, it's just, I, I, I really think that under the pressure and the scrutiny that they're under, I, I don't think you could bring up kids or create a family environment better, you know? There's so many haters in the world. Well, that's another, another part of society. It's easier to hate than to create, you know? So it's like... Absolutely. You up, you've just got these armchair critics. So that, that's what we, you know, that's how it is now. Is he one of the nicest people you've worked with in terms of A-listers? I mean, I guess one of the nicest and one of the most... Like I, I admired was Liam Neeson. I shot him with Annie Leibovitz, and he was just like I'd, I'd met him. It must have been ten, twelve years ago, and yeah. he was, I, I, God, what a what a dude! I felt like so inconsequential compared to him, but he was such a nice man. You know, I wasn't long in New York. He was like, oh, I bet you're having real fun now, Alan. I used to have great fun here, and he was just like such a a nice man. And you know, I'd never been so kind of intimidated by somebody's presence. Mm. You know, he did all the Michael Collins movie, just fresh off of that. Right. So, and I loved that movie. He was, so he was at he the was top, really, of his, top of the arc yeah, then, basically. Yeah, he was right at the top then, yeah. And, but just a really nice man. I actually recently just shot his son for the next issue of Associated, okay. Michael. Ah. And chip off the old block, and he's like a really nice guy as well. So, um, In uh, general, is it are they a pain in the arse to work with, these A-listers, or would you say that... You enjoy working. The men are different because the men are like, you know, if you come in, if I start flouncing around saying you're going to be wearing this, they're like, the, the guys are older men. They're like, fuck you, I'm not wearing that. Mm. You know? So you have to be like, look, I've got this stuff. I've got this idea how you should look. Usually look like me. <laughs> I make that confession. And then I'm like, 
Um, you know, you can have a look. I'm going to suggest stuff. I mean, because I do this, I'll tell you how it's going to photograph. Because remember, we're taking your picture. So just because it feels a bit funny doesn't mean it's going to necessarily look funny when we take the picture. You have to, like, make them feel comfortable. And usually, like, you know, I'm not in there, like, mincing around and making them feel uncomfortable or suggesting ludicrous stuff. So Yeah, I mean, usually, I would say that your style seems to be you, you keep the men quite masculine, don't you? You, you don't, yeah, you don't really make them all androgynous to guys and they come in there. No, and... I mean, it's not my, it's not my I, I wouldn't know how, I mean, I know how to, but I just, it's not what I stand for, so I just don't do it. So, so it's like, I, I never really have any problems. The one guy that I, in my career, that I didn't get on with was Bradley Cooper. Okay. That guy is, there's something strange about that guy. Really? He's a fraud, that guy. <laughs> well, has he, he got, comes in, has he got strange just, beliefs or is he? I just don't know this. He just wants to be an actor so much. Okay, like, affected. When I shot him, we shot him for GQ Britain and I had two amazing assistants. He's really attractive, cool girls who could pick up an antenna. They're so used to being on shoots with me and they were like, this guy's weird. There's something wrong with him. He turned up on his own. He's all affable, but it's all like, very American, looking in your eyes, like, like, no, I'm engaging with you. You're yeah, like, yeah. <laughs> dude, I fucking just met you. I don't care if you ignore me. That's natural, you know? And then just over the course of the day, he was just being like, there was, I just, we were not, I was getting so frustrated with him. And so he went on set and he took his tie and he kind of undid it a little bit. And he came back to me. I was like, did you, did you undo that tie? Because by that time, I just had lost all patience with him. Right. And he's like, yeah, why? And I was like, oh, fuck, it's so American that. I hate that. Right, because the American covers like details always have the dude. I think if you're going to wear a fucking tie, make sure it's done. Right? right? Yeah. Let that be slovenly. Right? That's my military. And I just said that. I'd lost patience with him. I was out of place, out of turn, and I was like, "Ah, oh, fuck, that's so American." He's like, "Dude, we're in America. I'm American. American magazine I said, what do you want to do? It? You want to go downstairs and sort this out?" <laughs> like he said, "I'm from Philly. I know the fucking streets. You look like you can look after yourself." Really? Just, he offered you outside. Yeah, in its essence, and I'm just like, and I'm, and I'm looking at the clothing rail, right? Because I can't believe he's saying it. And the art director for GQ is laughing. I'm like, oh, Alan, he, my money's on Bradley. And I'm thinking at that time, I was training a lot for boxing then. I was fit as a mother, you know. Yeah, yeah. but he's pumped like, too, though, Bradley Cooper. Nah, he's just, yeah, he's, if you've ever sparred with Andy with muscles, you know that that, you know, they'll push you more than, they've no power in a punch. <laughs> And I was, for a minute, I was like, dude, nothing would give me more pleasure. Let's just go in the elevator. Let's go in the cargo freight elevator and we'll just fucking go at it. I mean, he's a big lad. Yeah. It would have been, it wouldn't have been easy, but I would have cracked, I would have loved to have cracked him. Yeah. It seems uh, like some, some celebrities. I haven't worked with British GQ since. Really? <laughs> yeah. Which I don't care too much about. I was like, I hate that cover. I hate the fact that my agency puts it on the website because, you know, he's just such a dick. And he's the first guy, and I've shot with, you know, Leonardo DiCaprio just shot with like um, Mark Wahlberg. It's like guys, they're all cool guys. You know, it's like you just, you know, I've, I grew up with a lad environment. I, I know that, you know, I, I don't try and be their friend. Mm. You know, I don't try and get a selfie with them. I did with Mark Wahlberg for my friend's mum because she's from Boston and he's like a, his brothers have a restaurant in the town. So, but you know, you know, I don't. I know the reality is you're not a friend. You know, it's just like you come in, do your job, and then you bugger off. Yeah, totally. Uh, but some some but, of these guys seem to want to be. They seem to feel as if they have to be quite uppity oh, and here, detached here, in order oh, to. Here's, here's the two bad experiences I've had. Was uh, also um, his name just escaped me there. He played Ray. Ray, you know the movie Ray, Jamie Jamie Fox. 
So it was Jamie Foxx, right? So we shot him with Annie Leibovitz in uh, Paramount's lot in LA. So we dress him up. Now Annie's a bit like, everything's got to be like, a black guy has to look like a pimp. You know, it's kind of like <laughs> colourful layers. And he was fucking not having this. And right. he was bitching like, fucking like, white white person's view of black people and he's all that shit. And then the next minute, he's he's looking at the watches now. He goes, my watch is better. And he has this like $200,000 watch. Jeez. And then he's boasting about his Bentley outside. He had a mustard Bentley. And I was just like, but I, and I put up with all his shit. I want to see him. <laughs> oh, you're for your fucking people. And you've got a fucking half a million Bentley out there. Your watch could pay for like, you know, three people. You know, it's just, it's just ridiculous. You know, he was all like, trying to be political because there's, white Jewish woman was telling him how to dress. Mm. And he was so agitated. He was such a pain in the ass. But the only, I would say in fairness to the pair of them, maybe they'd be different now, but the only consistent thing with the pair of them was they were both up for an Oscar for the first time at the time I shot them. Right. He was up for, Jamie Foxx was up for, I think it was Ray. And um, so he was suddenly getting like the heat, serious actor. He's not just like in... Um, that movie with Tom Cruise. He started out as a comedian you, as well, didn't he, I think? Yeah, it just shows your money. He's a serious actor. Mm. And then Bradley Cooper was at the point, he was up for it with Playbook Linings or whatever it was, and then um, it was a shit movie. And he's, <laughs> and he was like, um, so he was suddenly, he's gone from being Mr. Hangover, right? Yeah. To serious actor. Right. And so he was being all serious. I you see. Know, he was on the verge of being taken seriously and there is nothing worse than an actor who takes himself too seriously right, so yeah. so those both incidences like occurred at the same time in their careers where they were about to like probably be propelled into like serious and so they were both just unbearable and that that's the only experience i've had with actors that were like in any way negative they're, they're generally all right are they is there a common strand that goes through all of these a-list celebrities that you see in all of them which makes them a celebrity or do you think there's some people well, are just in the, the right place at the right time or do you think it's just because well, they're gorgeous the thing about well there's i mean america definitely i mean pete Postlewaite, who was one of my favorite actors could never be described as gorgeous but <laughs> in america like you look at the movies you're like why is the dustbin like sexy looking dude with muscle it's just like that doesn't happen you know so it's in america it's unrealistic so they're like they're very attractive but it's the it's the it's the naked ambition that puts me off them you know they're so ambitious which it's like you know acting's an art form but there's so much ambition goes with some of them like robert de niro wants to do good movies mm. um daniel day lewis wants to do a great movie right yeah Bradley Cooper wants to be a famous actor. Right. He wants to win an Oscar. You know, Marlon Brando could give a shit about an Oscar, you know? But, like, it's those types, the, the, like the Bradley Coopers, are very limited. He's shit. I mean, <laughs> you watch him and he's trying to be serious. I mean, I am, like, prejudiced against him forever, but, you know, you know, he's in the movies and he's, like, he's trying to be serious and he's speaking quieter, slower. It's like Brad, uh, Brad Pitt used to do the same thing. Yeah. You know, he'd speak slower. He'd, he'd kind of, like let his words come out slowly and quietly because it gave him gravitas. Right. But it's just, you know, you Taking just... it all too seriously. I mean, I think that goes for any walk of life. You take things too seriously and you take the happiness and the joy and the lightheartedness out of your life, then you're losing in many respects. Ambition is the last refuge of the failure, which is what, you know, Oscar Wilde used to say. And I believe that to this day, mm. you know. You should do things because you want to, like, discover and challenge yourself, not just to be 
You know, I think that's a, a horrible thing. Yeah, absolutely. I, and I think that for me, uh, it's, I'm glad you mentioned Leonardo DiCaprio because I think he's sort of broken through a lot of those stereotypes. Like when I first saw him, I just thought he's an American Orlando Bloom, you know, very good looking yeah. guy, maybe not that much, inc- you know, natural acting ability, uh, you know, not to be too judgmental. But, you know, I will I will watch a film because Leonardo DiCaprio is in it these days. And I think that he is a good actor. And also um, Matt Damon. Tell me about those two. Well, I spent two days. We we had two days for the Vanity Fair cover of with Leonardo DiCaprio, and he was and he, I really liked him. And he turns up with his mum, turns up in time, ten o'clock every day. We have him till four. Two days in the trot, never a problem. And he was just a funny kid, yeah. and we, we had funny conversations. I said some, you know, I, I kind of get overstepped the mark because I like think, well, we're we're kind of lads now together. We can say stuff, right? And so it's like, you know, I was still new to the whole celebrity thing. So I remember saying to him about, like, when he did Romeo and Juliet. And I was like, ah, oh, the women were all after you then, eh? And it's like, what's happening now? And then he was just looked at me. And I said something along those lines, start to take the piss. Yeah. And he just looked at me and said, trust me, buddy. I still got it. It was just like, he's just, he's just living, he's enjoying it, right? Tongue in cheek. Not, yeah, well, it's just that like he's got the ability to, he's serious about his craft, I think. You know, I, and I, 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 I really do think that's true. Yeah, Same as I, Daniel Day-Lewis. Mm. He maybe doesn't have the character face that Daniel Day-Lewis has, but I think he has the ability. It's probably harder for him because he's yeah, such he a so good-looking pretty. guy. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and I think that when he gets older, he'll have the roles that... He's starting to get that now. But, and he doesn't always I mean, take the easy route. Like, he's done some really interesting no, films. No, I just, liked him. Mm. I liked him immediately. And he tried to steal a 30,000 Prada sleeping bag and I had to run in and get it off him. And, I, and he was like, got to try. And I was like... <laughs> I was like, you fucker, man. I was like, shit, my pants. But like, it just, he, he was a young guy who didn't grow up wealthy. He was just enjoying it. Do they adhere to like a really healthy lifestyle in general or do these people get shit-faced? I, I think a lot of them are like, I mean, in LA, they're all healthy lifestyle. You know, they've all been through their boozing phase and they're in their 40s and when fame hits, they're ready for it and they're all eating healthy and stuff. But um, yeah, I mean, if you go to LA, everybody just wants to live forever and is up its own ass, you know. So LA is like a horrific place for like, you know, vanity and narcissism, mm-hmm. you know. And that's why they're all there. It's like, you know, everybody has perfect teeth, the abs. And like you see guys with like bodies that are sculpted and and, not, and it doesn't look like it should be on their torso. You know, have you ever seen that? You're like, that doesn't <laughs> that body doesn't look like it belongs to you. you. It's like you've got this skinny little neck and little skinny legs and you've got this big arms and chest, you know? It's kind of weird. You see it a lot there. Yeah. You know? Who's the most um, charismatic person you've ever worked with? Who's the most interesting uh, personality that you've just, just immediately been drawn to? Was it Liam? Liam Neeson? Well, pr- probably because he was... Well, Liam Neeson was, as a man, I thought, what a guy... But, uh, Leonardo, because I thought, what a fucking life you've got, and mm. you're enjoying it. You know, I had to admire him for that. He's, he, he looks like he's going out, and when he was at that time, he was out with Toby Maguire and stuff like that. They're all getting pissed all the time. He always had a new chick. I'm like, why wouldn't you? You know? Absolutely. And at the same time, he has depth to him, but why wouldn't you just take advantage of it? Yeah, that's what I liked about him. He was, he just looked like, you know, he's got depth, but you know, I think everybody should have that polarity, you know, you know, like the ability to switch between being serious and like, you know, yeah, just, devotion to your craft, just, to having fun. I think that's the balance of life. And to have joy. Yeah. More than anything. Exactly. Just to have joy. Yeah. You've had an incredible career. I want to ask you two questions uh, together. I'll bunch them together. What character trait do you think was most important to your success? And what project are you most proud of in your career so far and why? Um, I guess it's just determination, you know, 
it's just because it's it's tough. It's like you know, it's a tough period just now. But you have to kind of ignore, somehow blinker yourself and get on with it. You know. How do you do that? I don't know how it's just become a pattern. You know, when I first wanted to be a stylist and I was living on a bed set with my friends in London and they were all like construction workers. I was living on an air bed in the kitchen, you know, because it was like costing me nothing. <laughs> you know, and you're like, you know, I'd be phoning my mum from a call phone going like, I don't know if I'm going to make this. I don't know, like, you know, living on a pound for a weekend in London. <laughs> you know, it's kind of like, it's, so it was tough. But you just have to have faith that you're like, you know, you're too good to not get it. And now, and now, you know? nowadays, you can draw on those previous experiences for your strength. Yeah, but it's harder as you get older because you're like, you don't trust yourself anymore. You're like, it's so easy. Much no, it's all going to end in disaster. You know, it's very difficult to like. It's much harder to maintain the optimism. Mm. I find so it's like you know, but is it? You know, that's the struggle. And what? And then. Yeah. Well, I guess associate. I'm most proud of doing associate, to be honest. Now, when we met three or four years ago, we we chatted all day, and then just as I was leaving, we realised that we had a shared passion for football. And you were telling yeah. me about your magazine. Tell me about that again. Where we can get it? What stage are you at with it now? And what's it all about? Well, well basically, we, you know, I've worked on style magazines all my life, but football is my passion. I've always like wanted to be involved in some capacity with football, and um, and I I had a speaking to some friends like 2012 and then I was like some friend mentioned they were taking pictures of local soccer players in New York and these and I, it was kind of off the pitch and they all looked so cool and I was like and it just it's a light bulb went off in my head I thought I wonder if we could do a style magazine around football this was 2012 yeah so me and my friends worked on something but it never came to fruition they didn't really know what they were talking about and so me having started done magazines before I thought right I'm gonna I'll bring in some of my own friends and we'll do it Ourselves. So I brought in my friend Stephen, who's the art director. Mm. And between the pair of us, we, in my room, we came up with the concept, we did shoots, we designed it. And, um, and you know, at first, I wasn't sure that we'd be able to pull it off. I thought, can you make football stylish? And then we did the first shoot. And I was like, wow, this is going to work. It's you know? never so, been done, really. I can't think of any other example. No, it's never been done, never been done with the same execution because we've got guys who are doing major fashion campaigns shooting guy you know with footballs and around the football world so that's where it's different i can draw on these people because i work i've worked to such a high level that that's the difference i mean there's other soccer magazines but they all do it in such a my thing was to i wanted to recreate the romance of football you know right the imagery had to be iconic you know the references were from the 70s and 80s where football just everything seemed more iconic because it was less pictures so when you saw that picture, there was only one of it, and that's what made it special. So and that's one of the reasons why we did it in newsprint, because newsprint gave it a iconicness that would otherwise be missing from a glossy magazine. Yeah, absolutely. And what are, what are the challenges of doing it in print? I mean, you must have considered just keeping it online. but uh... Well, I think that our online, we haven't still mastered that yet, because Stephen and I both have a history in print. Mm. I just think that print, for what we're doing, a small run, it's kind of, it's much, it's just, it gives it a, an integrity that digital wouldn't, mm. you know? So I used to love flicking it. through the newspapers on a Sunday afternoon. Well, and what, even that, though I that, can still do that, it's sort of been lost to me. I don't bother anymore just through laziness. No, no, my, my first experience of football was always through the newspaper. Absolutely. So I thought Newsprint was like the perfect forum. And we came across this other magazine that was called Victory Magazine that covered athletics and sports in general. And they had done it, and, and the images came out really well, like the, the colors and stuff. Is that so a contemporary mag? Think, 
Yeah, yeah, it's it's been it's been around longer. Now they've actually we copied their format because a it was cheaper. Secondly, the printing place is just along the road okay. in Long Island City, so they did get a little bit uppity with us because we basically took their format. But that's just like saying Vanity Fair copied GQ's format. It's kind of like yeah, it's the magazine. Just, get over it. Well, I did like, you know, I told them that they inspired us because I thought, well, it can work. Mm. But we've got better photographers. Our stuff's original content. You know, there's differences, but I could see why they thought, you know, we were inspired by them for sure. Because I just, I thought it can work in that format because I had never seen it done. I knew the idea could work, but I wasn't sure about the format because I'd never seen it done before. I love and then I the spot, fact. I love the well, fact it's it's it looks like that. And I, the first first edition that I saw, I mean, they all look great, but the first edition I saw was just it was just stunning because I've never seen anything quite like it before. Well, I, I agree. The first one is probably my favorite. The third one I liked also, but the first one because I'd been working on it for so long, so I'd been sitting on the idea, so it was much more, you know. You have plenty of time to create the ideas, polish them, and so that was kind of really with plenty of time to do that. It's like the first album. It's 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 kind of like that. The second one was a tougher one to do because it was just like we had to get another one out, and then, you know you're still finding your feet. But you know it's the first one was probably represent. It was the best representation of it, it and was- that's like true of any magazine. It's like you know after five or six issues, they just end up following a pattern because you have to because you're trawling at the same place. It's, you know, like the ideas dry up, the originality dries up, but, you know, you just, you try and create a format. You find works. a template that we, that's successful. Yeah. You use the yeah, things exactly. that work and you don't use the, the other bits. But I suppose also the first edition was the sort of embodiment of all of those ideas and fantasies that you had about about the uh, magazine. Yeah, like, like Los Blancos, the shoot we did that, it was all white guy in all white, swarthy looking Mediterranean guy in all white. It was based on, my experience as a young kid when Celtic played Real Madrid in 1980 in the quarterfinals of the European Cup. Yeah. I, you know, and, I, and we see these pictures of these players. Laurie Cunningham was playing for Real Madrid, but they were these guys with long hair, all in white, with no, like, there was the days before advertising and, and embellishment. So it was all white. It just looked amazing to me. Mm. And I still carry that, that memory in some, like, place in my brain. So I romanticized it in a much more contemporary way, but, you know, in New York. But that's where it comes from. And I think that's a lot of the ideas come from, you know, as a kid, just being in love with football. What's the best way for the people to get their hands on it then? Because obviously it's in a, it's a small run. Can people get it online? Yeah, order online at associatednyc.com. Okay. You can just buy it there. It's the easiest way. We have distributors, but they're varied. And, and because of the format, it gets stuck away in little corners. We, we have it in boutiques and shops. We drop some off, but you know the best way is online. You know, it is looks that, we, pretty high end. We, you, we also thought that, that you know the Instagram would be a marketplace for people buying it. it hasn't really turned out because the reality is, is like people love the imagery, but they probably more people see it on Instagram and online than they do the actual magazine because people don't really look or buy magazines anymore. It's really sad. It's back to what we were talking about. You know that I love the idea that we get ink on our hands every time we read it, and it and it and it. It disintegrates with every time you look at it. You know, it creates a character. You know, the pages Absolutely. end up crumpled. And, and I love all that, but people kind of don't warm to that anymore. Yeah, I mean, I, I know what you're saying. It seems that print is sort of dying to a degree, but they'll always, it's like it's like records, isn't it? Records died, but then they came back and, and you know, records are more popular yeah, than ever like, now. It's like vinyl. I mean, there's, there's more money, you know, 
Um, People went for CDs, and then they went for MP3s, and now I've got a record player. We've got a record player in the last year, and we go record shopping every week. We love it. We love to feel and touch it and smell it. Yeah, there's people like, and I do think that'll come back. It'll never disappear. Hmm. You know, it's like, uh, um, did you ever see the series Man in a High Castle? No. Oh, you've never seen that? It's on Amazon. It's uh, it's about like if the Nazis had won the war. So um, oh, sounds good. So San Francisco's Japanese, and you know the Eastern Seaboard's Nazi territory. Okay. So, but like it's a documentary, Japanese, right? No, it's a it's a series, a, a fictional series based on a book. It's mad. Actually, the series is better than the book. To be honest, that's the first and only thing. <laughs> um, Confounding but, uh, my theories, you bastard. Yeah, that, I just it just it just it struck me there. I bought the book thinking because Philip Roth did a similar thing, but okay. um, the, I can't remember the writer escapes me. But anyway, the, it's a series, The Man in the High Castle. Series two is out next year. But it's fantastic. And um, so basically, what's what the Japanese wealth they want are like old American artifacts, like records and things like okay, that. Yeah. You know? And I think that'll that is, that's true as we get more electronic and computerized that people will want mechanical things. Yeah, things that you can hold. Yeah, yeah, tactile. Absolutely. So, okay, so what, what, what's your end game then? Where do you see yourself? How do you project your own life? Would you like to ultimately move more into associated and do that sort of thing? Would you see yourself continuing styling or is it all going to be a conglomeration? What's your ideal sort of... I um, mean, in an ideal world, we'd get an investor for associated so I could like, you know work full time on it, get it out more often because it's a bit ad hoc at the moment. Mm. You know, it's when we have money to like get it out and we're doing a UK issue just now. Yeah. Um, so, which is difficult because I'm doing it remotely for the first time because, you know, I did a couple of shoots in London when I was there, but usually I'm really hands-on with every shoot. So it's kind of different this time mm. because the come to the conclusion that, you know, you could do something different with football in America, but the reality is the money, the glamour is all in the EPL, you know? Right, okay. So, so what, would you say chasing, the EPL is more popular in America than the MLS? Oh, sure, I could watch all the games for sure. Wow. Yeah, everybody does. Everybody here has a, an English team. football team. Yeah, that, yeah. That's why you wrote that Tinder piece was really funny and relevant because it's almost like people pick teams for the most obscure reasons. Right, okay. You know, there's not that tribal loyalty that we have, you know? Sure. Like, I did the magazine in scotland or england they'd be like i'm not buying that it's got a green guy on the cover like a rangers fan would be like you know it's kind of it's that tribal in the uk so you're so. testing the water but you're not massively confident yeah. that they're going to take to it in the same sort of way well, we'll, see. we'll see i mean it's but you know football's more popular you know like football and fashion's more popular they're so getting maybe closer instead, together i mean it used to be such a working class sport didn't it but now it's like you know like the pogba era where they're trying to make him into this multimedia personality you know but you know, I do, I'd love it. I'd love to be able to move back to Europe somewhere and do Associated, bang it out, make some money from advertising from it, you know, do a, get it online and, you know, and just build that. But, it, you know, it's a hard process because I have my day job where I have to, like, you know, as the cost of living increases, I have to spend more time doing my advertising jobs than I do on Associated. So. I delved into some research on you and actually found a quote where you said that I really do miss the Scottish environment and the nature. I really feel that the wind, the rain, the soil and the smells of the land are an integral part of who I am. 
And when I'm back there, I truly feel at home. You've already talked about your fondness for Scotland and this, a simple life in Scotland. Do you see yourself moving back? And, and how, do you, how do you deal with, uh, with your love of the countryside when you live in New York? Are there easy escapes nearby? And do you get out to the countryside? Yeah, you can like, have friends at places upstate, which are like two hours away, which are very similar to the Scottish landscape, you know? But it is an everyday thing. It's like, you know, you look out, it's concrete, you know? It's just, it's, it's not... I didn't realize that till I was older that I actually, I, you know, I'm a country lad and I, and I need to look out and see the trees, smell them, smell the rain, the grass, you know? I mean, I always go back home to Scotland in the summer. I'm very rarely there in the winter, so I am romanticizing it because a, a cold January morning in Scotland has very little romance, you know? Um, but, you know, I do, I, I do like being, you know, and everything's dead. The landscape looks dead. It's like the Somme. You know, because, you know, the trees are dead, you know, so it's a very different barren landscape in the winter. And then the, it's so vibrant and lush in the summer. So you get, you know, that's what I kind of like. I think that's why the personality, maybe the Scots is like, because the landscape in, in Britain, totally, the landscape dies in the winter, you know, it's dead. There's nothing, nothing living. And so it's, and it's dark and it's grim. So you don't notice that that kind of evolution when you're in the cities because it's just like it's concrete you know you don't notice that the, the trees are dying and it's the death of a season yeah i suppose that's a really good point actually yeah being in such, such a concrete jungle it's harder to discern the change of seasons yeah the neon lights everywhere so is it getting darker at night you don't really notice quite as much as you would in the countryside in scotland you know it's like wow it's three o'clock it's pitch black you know um yeah. So there's kind of like, but I, I mean, I love Scotland. I don't know if I could move back there, I guess. I think I'm too soft now, but. Um, <laughs> You'd like somewhere a little bit more Mediterranean, a bit more Southern Europe, I do. maybe. I, thought, I, I mean, in my travels, it's like, I, I do think they have the best quality of life. I do like Massachusetts, mm -hmm. which is, you know, up by near Boston. There's some amazing places up there. Again, it's very rural, very Scottish-like, but, you know, they have a quality of life, you know. But, you know, we'll see. I'll probably be grinding around the new york streets <laughs> I'm, in my 80s. I'm, gonna, I'm gonna i'm gonna fire some really quick questions at you who inspires you most and why throughout your life uh my family really my father's definitely my like an inspiration just because we've managed to maintain you know they're still together 40 years amazing it's like you know and you know they're, they're still very much in love and, um, you know, they, I love spending time with them, you know, just Have you always they, got on well with your dad? Yeah, yeah, always. I mean, like, he was, we're terrified of him up till about 12 or 13 when we realized he was all bark and no bite, you know? Mm. <laughs> um, he, he's a very nice, I mean, I kind of, I'm lucky to have the, the parents I have, they're very supportive, loving, you know, they're not, the families, they're everything. They're not distracted by their own ambitions, their own egos, their own narcissism. So I'm very lucky. Very a really nice departure from your world. No, exactly. It's uh, very lucky to have it. You know, it's there. It's a comfort blanket that is always and will always be there. If you could spend the day with anybody outside of your family, past or present, who would it be? And what would you do? Uh, Brendan Rogers at Celtic. I've fallen in love with Scottish football again. I love it. Brendan Rogers is like... I mean, because I love Celtic, and I got to visit the stadium last year through Associated, and it was just a boyhood dream. I mean, I, I was a season ticket for many years, so I've always been there, but and I've seen them all over the world. But um, you know, just I, I mean, if you ask me, I'd love to work for Celtic. I really would. It's just really? it's, I like multimedia now. I'm in design the kits, maybe. 
No, just the media. You know, it's like so multimedia there now. You know, they've got their own TV station, newspapers. What's the weirdest thing you've ever seen? Have you ever seen anything that defies science? Yeah, I, I can't say I really have. Nothing really weird. No, I mean, I mean, I was high in acid once and coming <laughs> nice. down, and me and my friend thought we saw the nuclear weapon being fired, but it was actually, in, and we woke up in the morning, it was a, a chimney stack in Kirkcaldy that was, had a flame <laughs> on the end of it. But we were convinced for like 20 minutes that the Russians had like pressed the button. Freaking yourselves that was out. A, that was, well, we weren't freaked out. We were both like, we shook hands and we were like, this is it, this is the end. I mean, <laughs> we were on a huge, it was a mental acid trip. And it was like, we had to walk up and down this little street. I was living in this house outside the Navy base. And we walked up and down the street for like six hours smoking cigarettes to walk ourselves out of this fucking trip and what the locals must have thought. But that is probably the only the weirdest thing. But I haven't seen Do you think everything could be explained by science? Well, I, or I, I, are you spiritual in any way? Oh, yeah, for sure. I'm sure there's like, there's something must bind us. They're just, you know, technology and science, I'm everything, you know. There's something that innately binds people. And what mm. is that? It's not physical. So it's got to be spiritual. So definitely, I mean, I believe in God. I, mean, I was brought up a Catholic. I mean, I, I'll, my default when things are tough, I'll say a few prayers. It's just, and I think it's just a way, it's a mantra. It's just like, you know, it's like, it's just a way of making yourself feel let, connected and less vulnerable. So, you know, when religion, you use it like that, it's a positive thing, you know? Sure. But, you know, I don't browbeat people with it, you know, it's like, but I definitely think there's something else. I'm more positive about the idea of faith than religion. I think religion, you know, has got a lot to answer for in terms of some of the oh, yeah, bad sure. side effects. But the idea of faith, the idea of uh, people coming together <laughs> and believing in something, it's so, so important. Where's the most beautiful place you've ever been? And where is the place that you most want to still visit? To be honest, you know, my travel bug, there's no pl- I'd like to go to Buenos Aires, but I mean, there's mm-hmm. nowhere else that, you know, I travel so much that, I mean, I, one... Have you done much of South America? Uh, I've been to Colombia a few times, been to Mexico, Venezuela, but, you know, I haven't done Brazil. I've no interest to go to Brazil. Mm-hmm. And um, I, I would like to go to Buenos Aires. I've always preferred Argentina to Brazil in football okay. and everything, you know? Um, yeah. I don't like the... Sounds never like a enchanting place, Argentina. I'd love to go myself. Yeah, I never liked the Brazilian football team. Never liked the culture of it. I always thought it was a fraud. 82 was the last time they had a decent team that you could fall in love with that played football the Brazilian way. Um, yeah, they seem more about eff- efficiency than flair these days, yeah, don't they? Well, I suppose that's the game in general, though. That's the way the game's gone. Yeah, I guess so, yeah. But, you know, I get. I would love to go to Buenos Aires. I've no interest to go to Australia. I mean, I've been to Japan. I've no interest to go to China. I live in Chinatown. That's about as much as I can take of it. Um, but, you know, I mean, I, my favourite place, you give Paris. I just, I love sitting in a, it sounds such a cliche, but... I could sit in a Paris or the Rue de Rivoli in a cafe and just marvel at the the architecture, the history of that place. Mate, I absolutely love Paris too. I spent three months there when I was much younger and it's one of my favourite places. I think it's got a real Marmite feel about it because my partner, for example, she hates it. I think, I think if you take it, the people into account, because they can be a little bit hostile. But I, I never, yeah. I, 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 I'm a believer in that you should be hostile. I'm a tourist. You, this is your place. This is your town. Mm. But mm. you know, and you, and it's also an act with them. You know, an affectation that they like. But I, I Paris for me is beautiful. I, I mean, I love, I love the Mediterranean. I think it's such a beautiful part of the world. Love it too. Yeah. 
Um, you know, south of France is amazing. I mean, I, I kind of like, you know, that would be it, really. I mean, uh, uh, Paris is... Uh, I, used to, I used to love going to Lisbon. Lisbon's a great city, yeah. Um, uh, you, I love Lisbon because it, it's, it's kind of small, but it's got all that history. And you it's know? rickety. It's not too posh. It hasn't become too affluent, has no, it? No, exactly. It's the last part of old Europe, you could say. Yeah. Um, I haven't been for a few years, but I, I used to go a lot when I lived in London. It was one of my favorite places, yeah. Amazing place. So, I mean, Paris is like undoubtedly, I think, the most beautiful place, you know? You and I have to go to Paris sometime. <laughs> we'll, share, we'll share a croissant. <laughs> Absolutely. What's your favorite music of all time and what are you listening to at the moment? Um, I get, I listen to, I mean, I get, I listen to a lot of old 60s soul music, to be honest. Such as? You know, like classic Sam Cooke, you know, like Ken Parker. Like, I like, like Ken Parker, this album where it's reggae and so I like reggae as well. I mean, it's just a, a very, a, a, my CD collection would be a very, basic British man's. I was never a musical. I'm not a musical. I was more interested in football and music as a kid. Okay. I've got friends that are mu pure musicals. I mean, I love music, but um, I was never like, oh, who produced that album? Oh, that was the guy It was in so-and-so. You know, I've got friends very much like that. And I suspect you're probably one of those types. But, um, but I, no, I love, I love, I love 60s soul, you know? I, I love reggae. I love that kind of, you know, Nina Simone. You know, it's kind of, I need melody. I, I, I loved indie music and stuff. I loved like, you know, Arctic Monkeys and when they came out and their, their energy. I loved Stone Roses. Um, but, you know, I li so I liked indie music. I like guitar music. And I, li I like melodies because I, I have quite a feisty personality that I need soothed, you know. I'm not massive. I mean, I like early rap music, but like, no, I, I don't, or hip hop, sorry. I, I don't really can't abide by the contemporary versions, but. Yeah, great music references, and they're all going to go into my show notes. Uh, I listened to Bob Marley almost on a daily yeah, basis yeah. last summer when I was in Spain, and we drove around the southwest of Spain and listened to it every day, and it just became like a mantra. There's good music, and then there's great music, um, and the great music is stuff that you just never get no, tired of. I mean, of I, have a, I have like playlists, and it's just I play the same stuff all the time. I could never tire of it. Like when I go walk my dog, I'll have my playlist that I listen to almost every day, parts of it, and put it on shuffle. Amazing. It's like drinking oh, it's water. Like, you know, and then like, you know, Nina Simone singing to love somebody to me, well, ne I'll never tire of it. The day that I, I don't get a chill listening to that is the day that, you know, I've, uh, you lose your love yeah, of life. No, that's it. like, you know, that's, that's the, the potency of music. And that's why I've got to edit it down to like, you know, I'll listen to new stuff, but it's, it's not as easy now with like, iTunes, you get it on there and it's like, I don't know who the band are, I don't know the personalities, I don't know what they wear. I mean, I'm sounding like an old bugger now, but like, you know. No, but I think I, I think it's a really good point because everybody listens to Spotify these yeah. days and you don't even necessarily need to see who's who who the band is, what you're listening to. It's all becoming a bit faceless. Yeah, and it's I think the music's that way as well. There's like, there's no, like when was the last real move? I mean, I think that, um, you know, Arctic Monkeys, I love, I styled them for Esquire magazine and they were great. I loved their music when it first came out because they, they had a... Mm. Identity. Yeah, and the language was contemporary. They were the last band that came out of Britain that were speaking in the way young kids did, you know? Yeah. There's not the language. I mean, I, I was never an Oasis fan because I thought they were just, like, thuggish, but I just loved Stone Roses. I loved that, you know. But, like, Happy Mondays. I mean, where's the next Sean Ryder? I mean, it's like, he was, he was just so lyrical, you know? Um, yeah. And he was 
you know, he and it, there's nobody because I guess the times are a bit homogenized now. It's all the same. It's like I don't know. It's kind of a funny time, you know. So there's there, there's lack of personalities. I know exactly what you're saying. Um, I am listening to a band at the moment called This Is The Kit, and it's absolutely brilliant. It's quite folky. I don't know if you're a fan of folk music, but I'm also... Yeah, I love folk music. I love melody, and uh, that's really melodious, and I was switched on to that a couple of days ago by a friend. This Is The Kit, they're absolutely brilliant. Have you got a favourite book? Um, I'm always putting, like, my favourite books in my head in case I ever get asked this question. I guess, like... You know, being more self-taught than anything, I'm like so predictably like pretentious when it comes to stuff. But you know, Confederacy of Dunces by John okay. Kennedy O'Toole, which is just a brilliant book. And um, mm-hmm. and he committed suicide before it was ever published. His mum published it for him, and it, you know, ah. and it um, won a Pulitzer. And then Star Rover by Jack London. I mean, I love all Jack London stuff because he was a sailor and he was like, I just love all that stuff. So that's then, adventure. They're sort of adventure yeah. novels, are they? Yeah, uh, well, Confederacy of Dunces is about this loony, big, um, like, closeted gay man in New Orleans that sells hot dogs. He has this fantastic impression of himself. He's so aloof. It's so funny. It's just such I've a, heard of that, but I've never read it, and I it's will. It's a brilliant do. book. It's a brilliant book. It's just, um, it's the, the character he creates is just so ridiculous and so mm. pompous and so, like, pathetic at the same It's brilliant. And it's, you know, it's to this day i read it for the first time years ago in my 20s or early 20s late teens um because i read all the classics because i felt i was leaving the navy and just like i need to educate myself and it's brilliant that book and then and then i i think that any great piece of content's all about great moments rather than necessarily the whole body of work they're like great films i always remember great moments in them and uh, the same with books i think that every single subject has been done to death it's about like making that subject sound different you know it's all about how these days rather than what i think yeah it's, it's different i mean i can't remember what the last contemporary book i read actually i did i read something recently um by the 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 fish that ate the whale Oh, it's brilliant. It's brilliant. It's about the banana trade in the 1905 and stuff and about this character um, who, Zach Murray, who kind of comes from Russia and, and takes on United Fruits, who were a conglomerate that like controlled Central America's banana trade. Like banana became, bananas became a huge, it, on, the, on the premise of I sell you now, you're like, why would I read a book about bananas? But it's amazing. In fact, like American politics entered into Central America. It really is a it's a brilliant book. I'll definitely check that one out. And it sounds a bit like book, the kind of book that those characters will never come. You just feel that fear that those types of characters, no matter how flawed they were, you know, the Donald the Donald Trump today. It's kind of when you read the book, you'll see this guy was down there in the the, the plantations, physically enduring the hardship. Yeah. Oh, he was a man that was you know had to feel it and touch it for all his faults building a huge company but you know today's version of that is donald trump 100 years <laughs> on you know it's kind of where's it going to be in the next hundred you know favorite film and or documentary well i i actually just watched life is beautiful last night okay or the other night which i hadn't watched for ages and um i just you know like amazing 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 beautiful beautiful film yeah, beautiful. Uh, and just about the like, you know, kind of the tragedy and the compassion of man. It's like, and then done in a brilliant theatrical way. I really loved that, you know. Mm-hmm. 
Uh, and if, do you, are you a documentary watcher? Oh, yeah, I watch documentaries all the time. I'm starting to remember what the last... I watched the Wiener documentary, which I, I'd recommend, because, I mean, it just at one point, the documentary goes, goes, says to him, why are you letting us film this, Anthony? Which is like, shows how tragic his life, because he was caught sexting <laughs> as he's running for... He was running for mayor of New York. He'd, he'd reinvented himself, come back, running for mayor of New York. He was ahead in the polls, and then, lo and behold, he comes out, he's sexting some teenager. You know, he just can't give up his faults. And um, and it's just, and it all crumbles around him. And the, this, the documentarian is like, you know, why are you letting us film this? You know, because tragedy. Yeah. I think that infallibility um, is really alluring. You know, it's really important. That, I think it's just really popular. People like to see fallible human beings rather than oh. perfect human beings. They find it much more as sociable and you know endearing when they see that people are are fallible i mean i think that's uh, why louis thoreau's made it entertaining because i like louis thoreau's personality because he's mm. so affable and kind of and he's never judgmental but then he'll he will say to them why do you think like that why do you do that you know i've watched a lot of his recently just on youtube because i'm a, a loss to watch anything and i'm, and I'm realizing how good he is at that that kind of just easy manner that he has you know it's not they're trying to get them he just manages through his like affability to like they just reveal themselves eventually, which is a very difficult thing to do, you know. I mean, yeah, it's, I'd love to do a documentary. That's one of my ambitions is to make. I'd love radio and documentary. That's two things that I'd love to do. What would you? What would the subject of your documentary be? I don't know. I mean, like we're doing the football thing, so maybe one day I'll come up with a topic because, like, we you know we come up with ideas, and there's been a few things I wish like we did a. Native American soccer tournament in New Mexico. Now, if I'd had the funds and the time, I could have gone down there and created a documentary because I'm sure there's a story in there. It's like Native Americans, you know? So, absolutely. Um, it sounds absolutely fascinating. I would like love to get involved. Yeah, stuff like that. You know, I'm sure we'll find something. So that going on with Associated, the breadth of it is like, you know, we talked about having, you know, because you can do um, podcasts and stuff like football related stuff, you know, and just, you know, one day maybe we'll just chat about you know, nothing like just a general chat about like we've done now for like two and a half hours, you know, yeah. just chatting in general about life, you know, because um, I love watching the golf. What's his name? The, the golf commentator, Peter. Oh, his name escapes me. But anyway, he'll talk about stuff about the golf. He'll talk about the British opening. He'll talk I know about, the guy you're talking about. I'm not a big golf fan, but I know the guy you're talking about. And he's got a real Peter, creamy, Peter relaxed, Peter amazing Peter voice. Peter Alice, I think it is. Peter and, Alice, and, yeah. And he'll talk about like, there'll be one minute talking about a putt that's to like, you know, to go five under for the championship. And he'll say like, oh, I seen old Mrs. Lindsay the other day in the supermarket. And, she's <laughs> and I just love that. Bringing elements of like, you know, real life and just mundanity of real life and mixing it with this, highfalutin tension of like sports I, I love how he does it i don't think andy does it better you know cozy commentary cozy commentary is with a little bit of wit in there you know because he's funny that guy you know in the right forum you can stretch the humor a little bit but i do think there's like you know it doesn't always have to be like shock jocks like i hate howard stern and people like that I just mm. that's too easy to do right it's just i, I don't know it's like uh, well, so maybe maybe something like that down the road 
I, I absolutely am fascinated by that. And you definitely have a, a volunteer chief grip for any documentary that you, you wish to make in future. Um, I am cer- I wish you all the best of luck with Associated. And I'm absolutely certain that somebody like with somebody like you driving it, it's going to be a massive success. So I should keep my edge to the ground on that one. And I'll put it in the show notes so people know where they can buy it. It's been fascinating talking to you, Alan. I've loved every minute and I could go on for hours longer, but I know you're a busy man, so I'm going to let you crack on with your day. No, likewise. Um, it's great to be able to like talk about stuff that you don't get an opportunity to talk about often. To vent. Um, yeah, to basically vent. Yeah, you just give me two and a half hours of like free therapy. So I'll thank you for that, and I'll take myself off. And like, you know, people will recognise the difference in me. They'll be like, "Oh my God, Alan, you look so calm," and like, you know. The natural high.